This is Top Landing Gear. Hello, this is Roy from Top Landing Gear and a massive thank you to all of you, all of our lovely listeners. I mean, so many wonderful things written about the podcast on social media this week. And it's lovely to be back in the top 10 aviation podcast charts across the globe. Yes, the aviation podcast charts do exist. I should know I'm a pop star. Charts are very important to me. Now, uh, Top Landing Gear usually drops on Tuesday, which is exactly why it's called Top Landing Gear Tuesday. But after we mentioned last week our interview with Hawker Hunter pilot Alan Pollock, the pilot who famously flew his jet through Tower Bridge, there have been several requests for more information. So here is that full Audacious Aviation Feats magazine episode, followed by our interview we recorded with Alan Pollock back in 2020. Now our brand new episode will drop next Tuesday. It's all about photo reconnaissance and the remarkable discovery and restoration of a photo reconnaissance Spitfire was last flown by pilot Sandy Gunn, an RAF pilot who was captured after their aircraft crashed in occupied Europe. He would later play a part in the great escape from Stalaglyph 3 in 1944. Uh, it's a fantastic episode, an incredible story from start to finish. So look out for that and we'll see you soon. Hello and welcome to Top Landing Gear and to aviation's most audacious feats. An episode featuring the RAF pilot who is responsible for one of the most outrageous aviation stunts ever when he flew his Hawker Hunter jet fighter through Tower Bridge in London. We'll hear from the man himself, Flight Lieutenant Alan Pollock, later in the show. His various capers during his time with the RAF are the stuff of legend. He's an amazing character. Uh, speaking of amazing characters, we'll meet the team in a moment, but not before our regular word of thanks to all of you who've been supporting, subscribing and contacting us at Top Landing Gear with your comments and ideas. You're the amazing characters, not this rabble. Here they are anyway, starting with our pilot James Cartner, who hasn't done much flying recently. I did a one flight. Uh, Singer-songwriter, pop superstar from Scouting for Girls, Roy Stride, who hasn't been doing much pop starring recently. No. No, none, none at all, actually. You, you yeah. did say you were writing some songs. Yeah, Is that I'm something that some songs, Scandal for Girls fans I, should be excited about? I, they would be very excited. Yeah, mm -hmm. I've, got, I've got lots of stuff coming out. But I did aviation base. I had a flying lesson. Yes. You did yeah, in yeah. something strange. In Icarus C42, which is a, a microlight. But I think I'm going to go for my microlight license just because it's a lot cheaper. And I don't have a job at the moment, so <laughs> it's quite hard to justify becoming a pilot when it's not your job anyway. But when you don't have a job, it's quite hard to justify being a pilot. When you, oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so that that's my aviation. Oh, that's news, quite but I loved it. I, I, I WhatsApp you all the photos. Yeah, you did. Had the best it looked time. great. Yeah. It looked fantastic. Yep. Um, and we've also got our agricultural fencer, Jez Curling, who has been doing a lot of agricultural fencing recently. Don't you, Jez? I have. It's, it's been the same for months. It's just the same old thing. It's like eat. Yeah. Uh, money fence, coming repeat. in. Money, money, money. Well, yeah. <laughs> I and think everywhere's fenced by now, isn't it? Uh, yeah, but you know, they fall over occasionally. We have to hmm. do them again. Ah, that's clever. I see someone that's put an electric fence around a bar in a pub recently. Yes, he did. I thought it was a cracking idea. <laughs> he's, not, he's not letting on as to whether it's switched on or not. <laughs> so there's a sort of fear factor, which I quite like. Yeah. Very good. There we go. And, uh, and me, Rob Curling. And actually, actually, do you know I have? I've actually done some work for the first time in ages. Is proper TV work? Well, it depends what you mean by proper. It was low-budget tennis commentary. 
But it, you know, it was on the BBC, good. hidden cool. away on their streaming service. Still, still a BBC presenter. Well, I it was on the BBC. You're not an ex-BBC presenter. So <laughs> have you written down at all, the, at all the blurb about? You'll have to change right, the right, website. Right, yeah. right now, I'm going Free to Wikipedia. Now. Yeah. <laughs> Temporary <laughs> reprieve. <laughs> yeah. No, it's lovely to be back. Anyway, there we are. So that's the four of us. Now, of course, we'll always have our regular features with Jez's quick facts, all about the Hunter this week. Uh, the hugely popular and always closely contested top landing gear quiz as the team battle to score any points at all between them. Uh, this will be a mixture of hunter questions and audaciousness. But we'll start with your chance and ours to ask our expert James any question at all about the world of aviation. So let's get going with the questions that have been sent in this week for Ask James. Roy, can you cue in some sound effects of tumbleweed drifting across <laughs> a featureless <laughs> desert? I could do an, an, an empty <laughs> post bag. What does an empty post bag sound like? <laughs> nothing. Absolutely nothing. But Is that right? I had a question for James. I haven't taken my first flight since lockdown to Geneva. I was uh, going through Terminal 5, which was quite busy. Mm -hmm. I, sent, I actually put some pictures up on Top Landing Gear Instagram, did like a bit of a live thing, and it was, it was kind of busy. Yeah. Uh, and I was thinking... As we're going to be getting back, people are going on holiday, people are getting back to the airports. If James says, what are your top tips top for tips. airports and flying in general yeah. for, for people just going on holiday? What? Right. Okay. Well, there. I would say there are, there are three things that you'll need to take with you if you're yeah. going on a flight in the, next few, in the next month or so. One of them is a comfortable mask mm. because you'll be wearing your mask for quite a long time. Yeah, I had to wear <clears> the mask. It's when we got to Heathrow... As soon as you got in there, if you yeah. were over the age of 11, you have to wear the mask. Yeah. All the way through. All the way through the flight. So make sure yeah. you've got a, a mask that works and is comfortable. Yeah. Do they uh, provide them or are you expected no, no. to provide you, them? You, so can't, you, you can't go in the airport. So you what don't if have you one. arrive without a mask? You wouldn't be allowed in, I think. So there's they a, there's a business some. opportunity there to sit outside the Heathrow <laughs> yes. Airport with a box of masks. Top Which say top landing gear. Yeah. Let's do that instead of this. Sounds a lot easier. So... Yes, we have a comfortable mask that's going to work and yeah. you can sit on a flight for however long your flight is because yeah. you're going to need it on. And certain masks need changing after a certain amount of time as well. So make sure yeah. you've got enough for the flight, particularly a long, long flight. Uh, the second is food. Take some food that you like yeah. because the, the normal services on aircraft are not going to be happening. Yeah. Um, some airlines are providing just a basic bag meal. Others are no longer just close the kitchens completely. Even on long haul? Uh, it, well, I think the long haul is, is a... Some Something. those that are doing long haul are just doing basically uh, what they don't what they don't want to do is have to have cabin crew heating up meals and then serving them individually to passengers. So even in in the uh, premium cabins, I believe it's fairly basic service throughout. So if you want particular foods, take it with you. Uh, and the last thing I'd say is take a sense of humour because <laughs> it is going to be like if you've flown before, it's not going to be like that at all. Yeah. You're going to have to be very patient, uh, very forbearing with everything because it's all different. And everyone's in the same boat. And yeah, don't don't go there expecting to be treated like a prince or princess. Um, you're going to be you're on that flight to get to where you're going, and it's not going to be as fun experience as you may normally yeah. enjoy flying. So things like going through uh, customs and like the scans, the checks, yeah. are you all spaced out? It takes yeah. forever. Everything everything is spaced out, but because it was quite quiet. Uh, it, it was like the most, yeah. probably the most, the best experience I'd had. Oh, okay. <laughs> and Terminal 5 is one of the best. Yeah, and people anyway. are actually, the, what I have found is the security staff are actually quite 
you know, jovial about it all. They're not. They're they're they're, they're team on the side. We flew BA. They were they were absolutely amazing. The staff were incredible. The way they got they t- it takes a bit longer to get on the plane because they mm. do it five rows at a time. But like it. Uh, it was. Yeah, it was really, really yeah. fun. There was no. I think we got a packet of crisps and some water. What, yeah. What's the lineup in the seats like? Is are the gaps between? No, no. There, was no there was no gaps, and also you, we still had to get a bus to the plane, oh, I like which that. is much more fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but uh, and that was probably usually they just put you in like sardines, yeah. and yeah. that was probably half as busy. Yeah, but it no. still wasn't. So they're doing empty. what they can. Yeah, and and, and, and what, actually, aircraft. when you're on the aircraft, a lot of people say, "Oh, you're in a, you're in a tube with all these other people breathing." Yes, you've all got masks on, and also that the air is filtered quite quite yes, regularly. It's, it's yeah. actually quite amazing how often we have these HEPA filters on aircraft, which which take out all the bugs, including COVID. They, they yeah. are proved to take out yeah, yeah. COVID. Uh, so all the air is filtered. Yeah. It's recirculated, but it's filtered every sort of Gosh. 10, 15 minutes. The whole aircraft will be re, yeah, recirculated. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's one of the – it's almost as good as being outside. Golly. Yeah. So you, you could be sitting right next to a complete stranger? Yeah. yeah so you're yeah. not – there's no kind of bubble – no, no. Mm, I think I think with face masks now, it's you know, mm. it's it's fine. Yeah, I thought I, I felt completely safe. I thought very well looked after. Yeah. It was yeah, uh, it was good. a really, I, other, really uh, great uh, Geneva as well. Same. Experience. Yeah, Geneva. It was it was brilliant. Get flying, yeah. everybody. Get flying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, Roy, thanks for sending us in that. Well, question. No, that's no problem. That's yeah, great. Well, that anybody James, else? That wants James to ask James a question. Eileen Strong got in touch. She sent a question last week about uh, all the noises you hear. She's just been on the flight as well and said she was totally reassured by oh. all the weird noises after listening we to We provide a public service. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, James, I think you've also well, got I your own question. question. It's not, it's Are you not, asking this of yourself? I'm not asking myself. No. I was asked it by a, uh, a friend's daughter recently, uh, Miss Hattie Lunt, and she asked, why don't aeroplanes have indicators? <laughs> <laughs> Now she did. She she did Sorry. justify this with a bit of obviously in the sky there wouldn't be much use, uh, but surely around busy airports it'd be a good idea to have indicators. <laughs> so I have to try and come with an answer to this. Yeah. Well, does she mean on the ground? Yeah, on the ground. So on, on the, the ground. Approach. So when you're all taxing around yeah. to know where all the aircraft That's are going. Actually, not such a bad idea. Well, you see, there is some sort of logic to it. Uh, I my answer that I had to come up with quite quickly at the time. <laughs> Normally, I have a chance to prepare these answers. <laughs> uh, was that we generally know where all the airplanes are going because you're listening out on air traffic control and they're all moving on taxiways uh, and you expect them to do things. You do sometimes flashlights at each other just to sort of yeah. say, I can see you or after you and, and those oh, sort of things. Have you, um, have you like four beams? <laughs> <laughs> Is that the way you do it? We have about six different lights we can turn on. There's a, one on the taxi wheel, there's ones on the wings, yeah. there's ones that go off to the sides so we can see where we're turning left and right, okay. coming off the runway. So you can flash all sorts of yeah. lights oh, and things just to sort of say, yeah, I can see you or thanks very much or anything. But uh, the actual, I don't think we need indicators for turning. As much. Well, How old is Hattie? 12? Hattie is um, 23. 20, 21. <laughs> oh, Sorry, Hattie. We're, that's very rude of us. James. But, no, it's good that she's um, yeah. she's writing in with a question. At least someone yeah. is. Yes, <laughs> quite right. Because you do right. also, you your route on the ground is often marked out by the lighting on the taxi. Well, at certain airports, yes. We, we have what they call a progressive taxi uh, mm lighting so it, they just light up the route you go and as you go over it and they then change it for the next it's a bit like a railway line 
Um, but they changed. Have you ever been in a position where you know when you're at a T junction, someone's not quite sure who well, to go first, and so you pull forward a bit, <laughs> your nose dips. Someone go, and then you sort of go, no, after you. It's a bit sort of like, you go, no, I'll go. No, no, sorry, you go first. You, oh no, I'll go. Okay, sorry. I have a couple of times when you you come to places, you go. If we both go forward now, we're both going to be stuck because obviously you can't reverse. So you, whenever you're approaching a junction and you appear to be going head to head. You always either say, does everyone know where he's going? Because he should be turning left. And if he hasn't turned left, you normally just wait and just to make sure that they, he or she does go. Um, and the other times when you sometimes taxiing and you're taxiing next to someone else at a similar speed. And you know whoever gets thrown first will be off first. And if they're both going in the same direction, you'll probably get 10 or 15 minutes ahead of them. Um, especially if there's someone else trying to... Um, block up the traffic. The so you do sometimes go a little bit faster just to try and get ahead of these little races down the parallel taxiways. So you sort of give them the bird through the window. <laughs> They're always waving, smile and wave, boys, smile and wave. Oh, that's fantastic. James, just a quick word on the retirement for, by BA of the 747 Jumbo Jet. I think everyone is devastated by that, but was it a total surprise? I don't think it was a total surprise. I think anyone could have probably seen it coming. Mm. Um, the big thing was that Boeing, about a year ago, started listing the amount of parts they were going to keep for the 7-4. So they weren't going to carry on making parts. So that was the initial death knell in the in the, uh, in the the 7-4-7 project. And obviously COVID, it's, it's one of the least economic long-range aircraft. The most beautiful, probably, that's yeah. still flying. Uh, but it, it, it was it was always going to be an issue whether that would come back. British Airways this week have announced they're no longer going to fly it and they are the biggest operator of the 747. Mm. There will still be 747s flying around. <coughs> cargo? Uh, cargo ones. There are a few of the newer versions, 800, or the, the, the 747-8s. Yeah, BA have some of those? No, they don't. No, oh, they're, they don't. They're just 400s, the oh, BA right. have. So um, they will. you will still see them in the skies, but not as frequently and unlikely to be a passenger on one. Mm. There are a few airlines which have had them, as sort of charter airlines, which have just kept them for, for bulk of passenger. But, and the 380, yeah. the A380 is the same way. Well, the there 380... There are other 4.8 engine jets, though. A340, yeah, no, they're, yeah. they're all going. The 340 yeah. is the game really 4 engine. Well, no, they're they, they, they on their, their last... They, they, the 330 yeah. does the job of the 340. Yeah. Uh, and with the, two the, engines. With two, and, and the 340 was brought about because of needing four engines to go... Across the Atlantic or, or long haul, since ETOPS came in, which is the rule that allows you to fly two-engine aircraft uh, without um, uh, being able to to stop immediately, uh, the four-engine jets just have always been battling it. And let's uh, say the the three eighty, they announced that they were no longer producing three eighties earlier in the year. I think was it yeah, last well, year? Just or, a few weeks ago, yeah. they stopped. How long they have they built been the around? They built the Ten last years, one. twelve years, maybe. Ten years, yeah, probably That's ten years. Isn't it? That's amazing. A lot of being scrapped. Or um, so, amazing. and it's just that it didn't, it didn't find its niche, mm. uh, and that sort of mass um, passenger traffic hasn't really. There are still a few routes where I think it's, 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 it works. And as far as I know, British Airways are going to carry on flying theirs. Oh, they? they've got twelve. So as oh. far as I know, they're carrying on. I think Air France have announced they're going to start winding theirs down very soon. Um, um, Emirates have loads, but they've. Yeah. They're only going to fly about half of theirs initially. It is a shame because it's a lovely aircraft to fly. Oh, it is. It's, it's a joy. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. it's just yeah. beautiful. Yeah. As a pilot, obviously, the 777 is a better aircraft because you need to be a better pilot to fly it. <laughs> <laughs>
We'll make a note do of that. You, <laughs> do you think it's, it's almost like it's another backward step in the commercial aviation world? Concorde going mm. backward step, so, well, and now all these big four-engine aircraft. The, the problem being that, that I think it's almost a a victory of design, if you like, that they found that the the most the best way to fly people around is in wide-bodied two-engine aircraft, which all look the same, mm. and that's where we are. Um, whether they have pointier noses or slightly curlier wings, <laughs> they're still twin jets. Uh, mm. And twin jets, for now, yeah. are the future. The, right. the good news coming out, I think there's a supersonic business jet which is a, has been announced recently. Oh, so that all... Um, John Hutchinson was talking yeah, about it. So that's looking uh, like that is, is, is going to come to fruition mm. within the next couple of years. And it looks very similar to an old supersonic aircraft that used to fly around uh, these parts quite a lot. Concorde? That's the one, yes. <laughs> Very similar design, yeah, a bit yeah. smaller. It's Americans. Well, look, I suppose we should get on to our kind of subject area for, for this one, which is mm. audaciousness. Mm -hmm. um, we've also been asking for suggestions for audaciousness as well as questions for James. We've had a bit more success yes. with our audaciousness. Yeah. We've had one email, <laughs> uh, which has come... From Bob. It was a lovely email. It was a lovely email. Thank you for this yeah. if you're listening. He said he thoroughly enjoyed our podcast featuring Dave Thomas, James's friend yeah. who mm -hmm. was in the Red Arrows. Um, what an amusing and modest man he is. Dave, uh, this is uh, Dave, not oh, you. Oh, okay. Um, and so he goes on. Regarding your request for examples of hair-raising flying, uh, how about the scene from the Blue Max movie where Derek Piggott flew a Fokker triplane through a very narrow span bridge? Apparently... The film director kept telling him to repeat the scene. They always do. And he ended up <laughs> flying through the narrow arch of the bridge no fewer than 18 times before amazing. the guy was satisfied. <laughs> Apparently Derek said there were just four feet clearance on either side of the wingtips under that arch. He was also legendary as a pilot in those, those Magnificent Men, Battle of Britain, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Red Baron, Villa Rides and so on. And many more. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of that sort of film yeah. stunt flying. There was, was, was it Ray Hanna did um, the Spitfire under the bridge for a piece of cake, I think. That's yes. one quiz question that's yeah. gone. Oh. <laughs> that's a shame. That's a shame. <laughs> Even worse that you've ripped yeah. up your but, script. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the wrong piece as well. Do you want to borrow mine? That's all right. We'll, we'll get through it. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I might ask you to name the bridge, actually. We could Ooh, still bring okay. that question yeah, in. Just... Yeah, where it was. But you're absolutely so right. So I've also <laughs> kind of scuffered one of his questions. I'm not going to say which one because I might still answer it. Yeah. Okay. So if we carry on this, we could be no quiz by the end of the whole show. <laughs> There'll always be a quiz. Yeah. Um, and also, Vicky Ingle has also been in touch about Gladys Ingle, no relation, uh, who is the only female member of the Black Cats. It sounds like one of your display teams, James, that you keep on with. They were a wing-walking team in the 1920s. Roy's just taking a picture of my ripped scripts. <laughs> um, they did loads of Hollywood stunts. And there is some incredible footage. I was looking at it earlier, actually, of her on YouTube, of walking out on the wing of a Curtis Jenny biplane midair, then climbing onto another aeroplane, which has only got one of its main wheels, uh, with a spare wheel strapped to her back, and she then fits the spare wheel to the axle of this second aeroplane, all in midair, before clambering back to stand beside the pilot as they fly into her into land with her still standing. No safety harness, nothing. I saw, I saw, I saw that. I saw that this week. Yeah, and then that, that I saw it last really. week. And it yeah. was... Because it was bonkers. There was 
because obviously I assume it was a bit of a setup in that it, they had lots of, lots camera, of cameras, lots of cameras to film about, it, yeah, on, on lots of aircraft around it to film it. But there was obviously no safety equipment no. at all. She didn't even clip herself on no. from between one aircraft and the other, which would be, I think, acceptable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she just jumps. It's um, extraordinary. It is extraordinary. It's worth looking on YouTube. We, we're going to put links to all these on all our social media channels. There was another Gladys as well, Gladys Roy. Uh, it's a very famous picture that I think many people will know because it may have even been a postcard or something of her playing tennis Yeah, mm. on top, yes. of, again, of a, well, Curtis Jenny on, on the top wing of the pub. They'd stretched a, a sort of little net across mm. the yeah, top. Yeah, I'm sure, I don't know why under the You board. could have commentated on that. <laughs> <laughs> You're the best damn yeah. master. Yeah. If you didn't get that gig. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's old that? enough. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that would have been fun. That would have been great. Oh, I love it. Well, so those are just a couple. I mean, there are so many of these things. Who else has got any uh, audacious Um, stunts? Well, mine, I I had a look, and there were a couple that that tickled my boat. Um, One is... Your boat? I don't know. Floated my... Floated your boat, tickled your fancy. Floated my fancy. One of them floated my fancy. (laughs) And that... um, No, the couple. One was the Jaguar low-level flying in Thumrat in Oman, and there was a... The Omanis bought Jaguars, and I think the RAF went out to, to teach them how to fly them. And so there was a mixture of Omani and, and RAF pilots flying these Jaguars. And I don't think in the Omani airport, uh, in the Omani Air Force, there was any rules about how low you could fly. <laughs> and so there'll be a flight line of Jaguars sitting on, parked up on their wheels, and some bloke standing in front of them. And all of a sudden, from the video, you'll see another Jaguar flying along, lower than the ones that are on wheels. No. Wow. Absolutely Come no. Um, so and that, that was a sort of fairly legendary, and I think there's a lot of videos. Again, we'll, we'll try and put links to those out on, on the Like socials. the VC-10 at White Waltham, which you mentioned in a previous very, yes, podcast. Yeah. Very similar. Um, but I didn't go for that one. The one I've gone for oh. is um, <laughs> a, a the fly past at 97 initial officer training uh, cadet entry at Royal Air Force Cranwell. And it's, does it involve you, manager? It doesn't involve me. Thank <laughs> goodness. <laughs> uh, it's a good. It's a good ten years before I joined the air force. Right. I think. Um, but so there were two phantoms, and again, the video is available, and I'll put a link to it. Yeah. Uh, if you watch the video, and I've spoken to people that were there, two phantoms did a fly pass, and the first one they do from left to right over the top. They're probably about 150 feet, which is a phantom is pretty loud and pretty big and pretty noisy. At exactly the right time, they do the fly pass. It's, it's brilliant. And then you hear the phantoms sort of disappearing, but then the noise stays stays there. I think this is a bit odd. Um, but and on the video, you can hear people start to shout um, the marching orders to march the, the cadets into the college hall, or when you go through the doors of college hall, you, you, you finally graduated. So there's a little bit of, of marching. And then the, the phantoms come over again, a little bit lower, probably about 125 feet. Uh, everything starts to shake, <laughs> and you think, Jesus Christ. <laughs> then the cadets then start their march off but you can still hear the noise of the phantoms they haven't gone away <laughs> and then you see one coming back at about 100 feet <laughs> and you think I mean hell this is low but what you don't that's the number two you don't see the leader until about five seconds later when he appears over the roof of a building and I think they've estimated the height was 72 feet wow. uh, he's on full burner and he slightly dips as he comes in. And to correct for that, he then pulls up on burner and flies away from the uh, the parade. The dais that the 
<laughs> the officer was standing on the the um, reviewing officer was standing on. He was a senior air, air vice marshal. <laughs> Apparently lifted off the ground <laughs> with, him <laughs> with him on it. With him on it. So the next clip of the video, you can see the cadets marching off. About twenty five percent of them have lost their hats. <laughs> there are flagpoles all over the place. Apparently, for those that there, they just say that the, there was a sea of grit that just came up from the parade ground and covered everyone in grit. And you can see all the, the, the sergeant majors running the parade just picking up hats and flagpoles and everything. It is to, again, have a look at the video because it, it, it is one of the most old. Anyway, so what happened after that? The reviewing officer storms inside and makes a phone call. Before he's landed... The Phantom pilot has been posted off the Phantom and given a, wow. given a punishment posting. Uh, the punishment posting was to run the low-level and air defence flying school for the navigators at <laughs> <laughs> So it was, a, it was quite a strange punishment posting. But, uh, oh, that's so we'll put the video up and it's, it's certainly... Yeah. Yeah. Roy, what have you chosen? <clears throat> okay, so my, my audacious uh, story... Uh, I believe is. I, I'm going to see if you can guess it first of all. I'm going to say, I think. Is it the Cessna 172? No. <laughs> is it Icarus it, flying too close to the sun? <laughs> <laughs> With you. It is one of the cockiest oh. aviation feats ever attempted. Oh, yes. The aircraft in question only had to fly 60 meters and it never even flew. Oh, yes. No. Anyone know? I don't see. Was it um, Hughes? Harold Hughes's Bruce Goose? Nope. Oh, nice try. I think that did get airborne. Is it, it did get airborne. A clue in one of the cockiest aviation Ooh. feet. Is my my <laughs> audacious aviation <laughs> feet is the Colditz cock. Oh. oh, the guy trying to get out of the Colditz. The glider. Which oh, was the, the glider. glider. Yes. A glider constructed yes. in complete secrecy. Amazing. By British prisoners of war being held in Offlag 4C, which was Colditz Castle in Germany. The idea for the glider came from Lieutenant Tony Rolt. He noticed that the chapel roof line was completely obscured by the German view. Uh, he realised the roof would make a perfect launching point from which a glider could fly across the River Mould, which was about 60 metres below. The team was headed by Bill Goldfinch and Jack Best after they found, in the prison library, a book called <laughs> Aircraft Design. <laughs> <laughs> which was a two-volume work by C.H. Latimer Needham, which explained the necessary physics and engineering, included a detailed diagram of a wing section. They built this glider over the winter of 1944, those two with 12 others, uh, and they put a runway, which was built with tables, in the top of this chapel, 60-foot runway, and it was going to be launched with a pulley system, which was based on a falling metal bathtub <laughs> full of concrete. <laughs> Using a gravity-assisted acceleration to brilliant. 30 miles an hour. Now, the glider was a lightweight, two-seater, high-wing monoplane design. There's only one photo in existence of this, which was taken by an American when they liberated uh, Colditz. Uh, wingspan was 32 foot. It was 9 foot, 9 inch nose to tower. And why did it not fly? Well, uh, after the murder of 50 prisoners, prisoners of war in March 1944... Uh, by the SS, which was obviously the great escape. Mm. Allied High Command had begun to discourage all escape attempts, especially as it looked like the war was going to be won. Mm. However, the Colditz prisoners were ignoring this and they had scheduled a takeoff 
for the spring of 1945, which was going to go in during an air raid, because obviously there'd be a blackout then, mm -hmm. there'd be the sound of bombs to cover up the, <laughs> cover up the, 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 the bath full of the concrete. concrete. <laughs> <laughs> which is my favourite bit of the whole thing. Uh, uh, and... Even though the, the war's outcome was becoming certain, the British escapers often decided that the glider should be available for use in case the SS ordered another massacre of prisoners as a way to get the message out to approaching American troops. So the glider was almost ready uh, when the American army liberated Colditz on the 16th of April 1945. Oh, so it never, never got finished. Never, but oh, in 1999... A full-sized replica uh, of the coldest well, glider. I remember watching this. Yes, yes. Channel was Four thing wasn't it? Commissioned by Channel Four. You reading my notes? Yeah. <laughs> I remember it. It was and, brilliant. And was test flown successfully in 2000 by John Lee at RF Oldham with Best and Goldfinch there. The guys who conceived of the whole plan with another 12 other veterans who were in Colditz at that time. Uh, they were watching proudly on as uh, the the glider flew. Did they no, use a bath to launch it? No, they didn't use it. It was there, but that uh, oh, that should've. replica yeah. is now housed at the Norfolk and Suffolk Aviation Museum. It looks amazing, actually. We should have to go there. Uh, and that documentary is on YouTube. That full documentary. Oh, yeah. I remember so, that. It's a Channel Four mm, thing. I, think. I do remember it. Yes, there's a load of things like the damn buses thing, isn't there? Yes. Oh, so, yes. but top tips to sort of prison warders. Don't have books on how to build gliders <laughs> in your prison library. <laughs> but that, that was my, <laughs> my audacious oh, aviation feat. Oh, oh, I, love yeah. I, love I love that. I love that. I love that. So, Jess, what's your audacious aviation story? Oh, I, I had three that uh, sprang to mind. One was um, the flight of the Phoenix, which I did actually have to check was actually true, which is the cargo plane that crashed uh, in the desert mm. and they basically rebuilt and and I managed to fly out. The film, The Flight of the Phoenix, is 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 a great film. I'm not sure how true to the actual actuality it is, so mm -hmm. I discounted that because I didn't have time to do a lot of research on it. The other one that sprang to mind immediately was Matthias Rust landing his Cessna in Red Square. One seventy two. Yes. Yeah. Yes. In yes. in yeah. in in, uh, in 1987, I think it was. Yeah. What uh, did he do there? Did well, he, he he flew from Germany to um, the Shetland Islands yep. uh, and then looped back through to the Faroe Islands and then went back into Norway, I think, and then said he was going to fly down to Denmark or something. That might be not quite right. But actually what he decided, he'd already planned this, I think. What he actually then did was just flew straight to Moscow. <laughs> and it's an extraordinary story. This landed, is not even my story. Yeah, landed in Red Square. Landed in Red Square. Uh, uh, he from Finland, I think. Uh, Finland, Finland, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right, where he started. But he went off, you know, up yeah. into the Shetland Islands and back, and he did quite a trip. And he, you know, he told his his parents, he was only 19, this guy, that um, he was going to do this sort of huge trip, but had already decided that to sort of make a statement about peace, that he was going to um, uh, fly into Red Square. But he was, you know, in two minds, really, as whether to do it or not, because he was, obviously, he, was, he, he calculated he had a 50% chance of being killed. Um, and in fact, as he went, flew into Russian airspace, now Russian airspace is the biggest air borders, I think, mm -hmm. in the world. So, mm -hmm. you know, they've got a lot of airspace to cover. Um, two uh, Russian fighters intercepted him, flew alongside him, and waved to him, and unbelievably just let him carry on. No. And there was something to do with there'd been an air crash the day before, and there'd been some confusion within the Russian um, air ministry and, and all sorts of things. But he basically made it all the way to Moscow. Looked to wanted to land in Red Square, but couldn't because there were so many people around. Found a bridge to land on, oh. and the bridge he only managed to land on the bridge. Normally, there's bollards in this bridge. They some sort of 
sort of bollard things. They'd be removed for painting or maintenance or something. Imagine landing this bridge and he taxied off this bridge and into Red Square. <laughs> extraordinary. Where he was then, I may just do this as my thing, actually. It's just a story. <laughs> where, where, he was, um, where he was then sort of hounded and mobbed by these people. And yeah. he said, I'm, I'm from Germany. And, oh, yeah, it's another comrade. No, I'm from West Germany. <laughs> uh, and um, actually, he, um, he, he... He went to prison for He went to prison. He was sentenced for four years uh, for adventurism. Uh, or something. Uh, uh, yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah. Uh, this is June. This is you know just coming towards the end of the Cold War. So Gorbachev was in power, and um, he he served a year uh, in in a Russian in a Russian prison. But Gorbachev, uh, it was quite handy for Gorbachev because he wanted to get rid of a load of his military commanders and managed to through this sack 150 of them. <laughs> uh, you know, in, in, in the following months, you know, their their blatant failure to intercept a Cessna as it landed in, in everyone loves yeah. a Cessna. Yeah, everyone loves yeah. a Cessna. Yeah. But that's not my audacious, my actual uh, audacious and it's as much daring do and bravery as audaciousness mm. is uh, I'll set the scene it's Falkland Islands, uh, South Georgia, a Falkland Islands um so 400 miles to the east of the Falklands. Uh, 1982 uh, had been invaded by uh, a small contingent of Argentinian troops. Obviously, um, the, the Falklands were invaded a few days before, but uh, Thatcher then decided to send a task force down, which we all know about very famously. You know, we retook, we retook South Georgia and, and the Falklands. But uh, part of um, the, the retaking of South Georgia was that the SAS, who were, were embedded or embarked upon HMS Antrim, uh, had decided that they wanted to put ashore to do a recce uh, of uh, Stromness Bay, where there was a a, 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 um, a garrison, a small garrison of Argentinian troops, and there's a whole backstory to this, which I won't go into now, but it's fascinating. And in fact, some of this, uh, I'm, I'm reading a book um, called Across an Angry Sea, which is by uh, the SAS commander. I didn't know well, you could read. <laughs> it's actually an audio book, <laughs> but I just thought I'd say read. Well, but James. Uh, uh, by by a guy called Cedric Del Delves, who uh, also tells his story on one of uh, on a history hit uh, podcast, yeah, which is great. Anyway, not to promote any somebody else's podcast. Um, so so he decides that they want to be put ashore onto South Georgia, but they don't want to make them to do a recce to see what they can find out before they put them sort of main landing force on, and against. All advice from uh, uh, naval personnel and from HMS Endurance, who was tasked there as well as part mm. of this small task group, he decides he wants to be put down on what's called the Fortuna Glacier. The only way he can get onto this is by, hel by helicopter. Um, and uh, three Wessexes uh, carry out this mission to put the troops abroad. There's two Wessex Fives from, uh, uh, from HMS Springtide and the Wessex Three, which is an anti-submarine warfare. Uh, Wessex, um, which isn't built for carrying troops, basically. which isn't built for carrying oh, troops. So the yeah. other two were were, were, were what are you called utilities? Yeah, is that right? Utility helicopters. Well, we must remind our dear listener, what's his name? Uh, that yeah, of course Bob. James is a former. That Wessex was my first pilot. steed in the RAF. Yes. Yeah, I was I was quite Wessex. I was quite cognizant of the fact that you may pull me up on every fact. Yes. No, I'm yeah. not here. Only on the fact you can read. To be fair, <laughs> well, yeah, well, or listen. In fact, no, I know. Uh, anyway, so 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 um, because of the way the navigational stuff worked on on the Wessexes, West Humphrey, West, the West Eye, <laughs> uh, uh, Humphrey had to lead these other two Wessexes in to place the troops Humphrey. because Humphrey was the Wessex Three's nickname. I should have oh, I should have mentioned oh. that. It, became, mm. it was famously known, and this is a story of legend. Uh, 
They put the troops down through the most appalling weather, and, and a storm of biblical proportions was on its way up from the uh, from the Antarctic. They got these uh, SAS D Squadron Mountain Troop troops onto the glacier. Helicopters after three or four attempts of getting up there, uh, helicopters went back to their to their relative relevant ships, and the troops deployed and started to make their way across the glacier. Darkness fell. They put their tents up or whatever else to do. In hundred mile an hour winds, by the morning, all their kits disappeared across the glacier, and they they asked to be Kazivak uh, almost effectively. You know they're, they're they're in pieces these guys, and this is this is the SAS. You know, so this is where the audacious flying really starts. Is that um, the the pilot uh, of uh, Humphrey the Wessex Three, a guy called Ian Stanley, uh, who became a, again a, a sort of legendary figure, really uh, a naval air squadron guy goes up to recce the glacier through the most appalling conditions. He's losing his mm. tail rotor. He can't keep the thing, can't get up there, goes back. Overall, and to cut this a little bit short, he does nine sorties. Uh, the last three, uh, the, the first of the last three, he finally gets to take the two other Wessex fives behind him up onto the glacier through the most appalling conditions. They put down, it's about 1.30 in the afternoon, 22nd of April, I think it is now, 1982, they get all the troops onto the three helicopters and they hover taxi towards the edge of the glacier where a white egg comes in. Oh, my God. The first Wessex, again, with no navigational aids, mm. basically the pilot loses all situational awareness. Mm -hmm. um, that was most of my time on the Wessex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, 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 loses, he loses all situational awareness. And, and as... as um, as was sort of quoted in the book, um, his senses are saying one thing, his instruments are saying another, mm. and his instincts are saying something else entirely. What happens is his altimeter unspools, the helicopter hits hits the deck, rolls over, bits of rotor fly all over the place, one helicopter crashes in a whiteout. Um, Cedric Delves is on Humphrey, standing between the two pilots, goes, oh my God, we've lost a helicopter. That, that, that a brief pause in, if you like, in the in the snowstorm reveals these other two helicopters in the hover at this point that the helicopter is down, but no injuries, unbelievably minor injuries. Mm. So everybody bails out of the crashed helicopter. That was the beauty of the Wessex; it was built like a tank. <laughs> well, yeah. it clearly, mm. it needed to be in this mm. situation. The troops disembark from from uh, the, the the downed Wessex, get onto the. Wessex 3, Humphrey, which is now already overloaded, mm -hmm. and onto the other Wessex 5. Humphrey then takes off again, and they hover taxi towards the end of the glacier, at which point the second Wessex is lost into a whiteout, pilots a situation in the Venice, hits a ridge, <sighs> helicopter crashes, falls on its side, bits of rotor all over the place, <sighs> and now they've lost two helicopters out of the, out of the three they had. Humphrey's still able to uh, operate. It has better instrumentation, I believe. Right. It had a observer... Mm -hmm. The guy called Chris Perry, who I'll talk to you about in a minute. So by this stage now, um, there are now uh, too many troops on one helicopter and uh, two helicopters down. He flies, Ian Stanley flies back to HMS Antrim, gets these guys off, comes back to pick up basically 17 more troops in an aircraft that shouldn't carry any four. <laughs> He gets up back. He, he has to go back. He flies up to 3,000 feet. This glass is 2,000 feet. He flies up to 3,000 feet. He looks down to see if he can find the wreckage of these two. Amazingly, a, a break in the clouds. 
he he lands uh, and instantly they spot these two crashed helicopters. The glaciers, I've looked on Google Earth, this glacier is massive. Mm. Um, they land, they get all 17 troops on board. <laughs> he tells them to leave all their kit, they just bring their rifles. Yeah. There's now 22 people on board this helicopter. <laughs> and it's not a big helicopter. They're literally hanging out the side. This thing is overloaded now by over two thousand pounds. Now I don't know how, how that compares, James. That's that, a lot. I mean, you're, you're bending stuff at this point. Yeah, <laughs> it shouldn't be flying. It shouldn't be flying anyway because of the weather conditions. Yeah. So Stanley knows that he's going to struggle to get off the ground, but he waits for the strongest gust of wind he can find, which basically lifts him off. Oh, God. And all he can do, he knows now, he can't hover. Mm. All he can do is fly on the straightest line he can back to Antrim. Bear in mind, this thing is moving up, the deck of this thing is moving up and down by tens of metres. Mm. Not to teach you to suck eggs, but a helicopter normally comes in from a stern mm -hmm. and then hovers sideways, yeah. slides so sideways onto the flight So you use the speed of the ship moving yeah. to give you extra airspeed. He couldn't do this. Oh my There's God. no way. He could not hover. He was so overloaded. This thing was barely... And, and these Wessex 3s were renowned for engine failures as well, <laughs> apparently. So this thing is overloaded. Uh, I mean, it just shouldn't be in the air. He's got one chance to land this helicopter. So what he does, instead of coming from the stern, hovering and to, uh, sliding across and landing, mm. he comes in from the uh, port side, I believe. The beam, it's called. The beam. Thank you. And and he knows all he can do is come in sideways across the ship and yeah, just running landing, yeah. uh, running landing. Which mm. if he gets wrong, he'll be straight over the edge mm. of the ship with all, all himself and all his troops. He has to judge it with the with the rise and fall of the. Um, we rise and fall of the ship as well. Yes, and what happens basically is, according to, to to what I've listened to and read, is that he comes in. This thing is struggling. He judges it absolutely perfectly, slams it onto the deck, all the, and he's done it. He's made it back onto the onto the ship with 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 minimal actual drama, no injuries, no uh, loss of life, uh, and no damage to the helicopter. It's a most that incredible piece of flying. That is a podcast on its own. Yeah. It is absolutely incredible. I've read so much about it now, and, and you know, having listened to this book, which you which you have to listen to. Can I just ask James? That's brilliantly yeah. told. Mm. Um, yeah. Do you you can't train for those sort of eventualities, can you, or can you? I mean, no. I mean, how would you've known about you know not being able to hover and well, waiting we, for a gust of wind? I mean, just know, extraordinary stuff. With flying helicopter, one one of the things that you know is that forward speed gives you extra lift. Hovering takes more power than moving forward at about 30 or 40 knots uh, because of a number of reasons. But one of the things is called induced flow. So if you actually have flow through the rotor disc, it gives you more power. So if you have a single engine failure, for example, during all your training, you're taught to do running landings, which give you the, the, the chance to go over. You can't necessarily bring the aircraft to a hover, but you can do a running landing and running takeoff. Um, so you know about that. But a lot of it is just through experience, knowing what you can get away with, mm. uh, learning on the on the job, really. Wow. So it's uh, it was it was obviously very good use of his of his skills that he had picked up to that mm. point. He 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 and his crew thought they had a pretty high chance of not coming back. Mm. And Chris Perry, who I'll come back to in a second, uh, had written a, re a letter to his wife, put his wedding ring in the envelope with a letter because he, he thought there was a high chance they were not going to make. It was so dangerous they weren't going to make it back out mm. of this. And he knew again. Uh, from what I've read, that as you get back down towards the ship, the air is warmer and you get less lift. Mm -hmm. So even, you know, one thing, getting off this glacier with, with sort of thicker air, mm. but but less lift with the thinner air, I think, he was even less confident that he was going to make it back mm. to the ship without ditching straight into the sea. It was incredible. Mm. But I must just say, so 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 
not only did Humphrey uh, this this Wessex became, which is now on display in uh, uh, R.E. Uh, Yeovilton oh. mm-hmm. uh, uh, with its bullet holes in, which I'll explain <laughs> to you about in a minute. A few days later, um, uh, the Argentinian submarine, the Santa Fe, was trying to leave uh, South Georgia. Um, the, the Royal Navy picked up on this and decided they were going to depth charge it. Uh, Wessex, uh, the Wessex, Humphrey, the, the Wessex three was sent as the first aircraft to locate and destroy this uh, mm. submarine. And this guy, Chris Parry, who was the observer on the, the Wessex, uh, fired the first shots, effectively, in the Falklands War by depth charging uh, the submarine. It's the first time a helicopter had depth charged a submarine ever and the first time a British crew of any description had, had attacked a submarine since the end of the Second World War. Hmm. More bizarrely still is when I read this, I thought, this is a very familiar story. <laughs> I'm sure I know something about this. And I was racking my brains. I think I've met this guy, Chris. <laughs> I'm sure he told, I'm sure I met somebody <laughs> who told me he was fired the first shots. And the one I asked Rob about this, yeah. said, yeah. he said, no, I don't remember. And it came to me, this guy was married to a woman called Alison whose father is Rob's godfather. Really? <laughs> and I'd met, he came to our house, this guy, Chris Parry, probably the year or two after the Was Falklands he looking War. shaken? Yeah. <laughs> well, not that, at all. That's well, a bad work, isn't yeah, it? That is... I seem to remember him being rather, you know... <laughs> quite confident. Confident about mm-hmm. it. Uh, mm-hmm. And he became a rear admiral, as mm-hmm. it turns out. Yeah. And he told me, I was 15 mm. at the time. He told me, oh, yeah, I... F- this was a long time ago, then. I fired the... F- <laughs> nice day, too. <laughs> I fired the first shots of the Falklands War. So mm. having... By accident, picked on this story. I've now realised I actually know one of the key oh, characters yes. in it. No, met. Isn't that amazing? It's absolutely so, what awesome. A, what a, what a yeah. uh, turn up for the books. But it's a, a brilliant story. It's an amazing, uh, unsurprisingly, uh, Stanley got the DSO for his, mm-hmm. his troubles and, um, and no, nobody lost their lives. So there oh. we go. That, that yeah. was a bit longer than I intended to be. But, oh, uh, that's super. Uh, uh, it's a great story. Great story. Oh, hats off to those guys. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but again, for audacious flight, there are, there are lots of really heroic things in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the one that I think a lot of people know about is the guy who, in his hurricane over London, rammed uh, a Dornier mm. DO-17 because he'd run out of run out bullets. Of bullets yeah. um, and he knew that Dornier was heading for Buckingham Palace, mm. dropped its bombs there. And so all he did, he just turned round, headed for it, sort of head first, <laughs> but from on top. The, the tail set up on a Dornier looks pretty flimsy. That's what he thought. He said, well, I'll just snap the tail off by hitting it. Well, he did hit it, and it did snap off, but it was incredibly hard and wrecked his hurricane. Mm-hmm. So he bailed out. But in the meantime, the Dornier just went straight down. The wings came off, and it Jeez. went straight down and crashed on the forecourt of Victoria Station. Nobody was killed. Wow. Eventually, some of the German aircrew did perish, but no one was killed on the ground. And uh, the pilot, whose name was Sergeant Ray Holmes, uh, survived, and he was he was carried off because he had a parachute mm-hmm. back down. Yeah. He was carried off uh, into the sunset as a hero. Wow. But I mean, those kind of stories. How do you, in, in your head, think I'm just going to ram this? Mm. It's it's extraordinary. It, a hurricane, which is essentially just made of wood. Yeah, just exactly <laughs> yeah. wooden canvas. Yeah. yeah, but there are. I mean, we we could go on all night talking about it. It's yeah. extraordinary. Yeah. Feats of, yeah. of, as you say, daring do. They are phenomenal. Absolutely. Phenomenal. Fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. There's a book there somewhere. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> right. I wonder then, shall we perhaps, Jez, uh, move on to our subject of Alan Pollock and his ad- audacious Tower Bridge flight, which was made in the wonderful Hawker Hunter? Gerard, how about some Hunter? 
Quick facts. Well, as usual, lads, these aren't very quick, but hopefully they are facts. <laughs> so here we go. The Hawker Hunter was developed during the late 1940s and early 1950s. And the Hunter is a transonic aircraft, uh, and its story is really one of numerous trials and developments. In fact, 81 vari uh, variants of a total of 1,972 of Sydney Cam's design were built. That's a lot of them. Mm. It's a huge amount. It's a lot of 81 variants. Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. It's. I, I researched this a little bit on the BAE Systems website, so I'm mm. fairly confident of my, <laughs> of my, for once, of my, of my fact. Uh, they were built under license um, by uh, Armstrong Whitworth in Coventry and also by Hawker at Kingston upon Thames and in Blackburn. Uh, on the 7th of September 1953, the first and only Mark III Hunter. This is maybe why there are so many variants. <laughs> um, broke the world airspeed record for a jet-powered aircraft, achieving 727.63 miles an hour in a flight over Littlehampton. Uh, the aircraft was flown by the legendary Neville Duke. Mm. Um, with the RAF, the Hunter entered service as a fighter and later a fighter-bomber. The two-state trainers were also used by the RAF and Royal Navy. And the Hunter had a wingspan of 33 feet 8 inches with a maximum speed of 0.94 uh, Mach or 715 miles an hour. Uh, it had a combat range of 385 nautical miles. In the majority of variants, the aircraft was powered by a single Rolls-Royce Avon, uh, Avon turbine. The Mark 6F was the most numerant variant with 384 built in its interceptor fighter roll carrying four 30mm Aden, uh, Aden cannons uh, and the wings had four hard points on which could carry amongst others four air-to-air -air missiles or £4,000 bombs. It was a very versatile aircraft, mm -hmm. uh, especially with its 81 variants. Uh, RAF hunters uh, stationed in Aden actually saw a fair amount of uh, combat um, and an insurgency which is in progress in Aden in 62 and 63 and supported by Egypt. Uh, the hunters dropped leaflets, bombed insurgent installations and provided air cover for British Special Air Service commandos on raids into insurgent territories. The insurgency faded out in 1964 and actually the hunter didn't actually see that much active combat service. It was uh, widely exported to at least another 21 other countries. Uh, and the Hunter F6 uh, variant, which again, as I say, was the most common, was a display aircraft of the RAF's Blue Diamonds, who flew 16 aircraft, and the Black Arrows, who once famously looped a record-breaking 22 aircraft in formation. Uh, and hundreds of examples of the Hawk Hunter are still flying. Yes, thank yeah. goodness, because it is a beautiful aircraft. It's, a, it's regarded, really, as the... The jet version of the Spitfire, isn't it, in many ways, because of its beauty. And mm. actually, because in many ways, it filled similar similar roles. And I, I think also it flies beautifully as well, yeah. by all accounts. It, it, we were talking to um, Mr Pollock, yes, as we'll get on to later, and it, we were comparing, he was talking about, because <clears throat> he's flown everything. Yeah. Um, he was very lucky. But he, he had flown the Hunter and the Supermarine Swift, which looks beautiful, similar to a Hunter. And he just said that the hunter flies beautifully, and the Supreme Swift was a pig. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it, yeah, I think all all the pilots that flew the hunter loved how it flew. Well, it was still in service up till <coughs> two thousand and fourteen with um, Swift, maybe yeah. Lebanese, Lebanese, oh, really? Force, Lebanese. Yeah, yeah. Wow. And um, it only finished you know service in the RAF and the Royal Navy as a trainer, I think, in, mm. in the nineteen nineties. Um, the Swiss had a load of them, didn't they? Yeah, the Swiss yes, had loads. They used yeah. them for their aerobatic displays, mm. I think. Yeah. It was replaced by the uh, Lightning, English Electric Lightning, the Harrier and the Phantom F4. Mm. 
So it had quite a uh, sort of, it was a predecessor to quite illustrious aircraft. Itself. Yeah. Oh, it was a beauty. Absolutely beautiful yeah. aircraft. Yeah. Well, so then to our special guest. Thanks for that, Jess. Um, Flight Lieutenant Alan Pollock, who in April 1968 flew his RAF Hawker Hunter through Tower Bridge. I'll just give you a little bit of background to this, because at the time, Harold Wilson's Labour government had denied the RAF the opportunity to mark its 50th anniversary with a fly-past. All they were allowed to do was to have a few celebration dinners. It was also a time when huge defence cuts were being implemented, including the cancellation of projects such as the TSR2, much if not all in response to the Duncan Sands White Paper of 1957, which wrongly foresaw missiles replacing fighter aircraft. So this resulted in the closure of many famous RAF airfields and inevitably morale in Britain's armed forces was at an all-time low. So one man thought he'd let the government and the world know about this. And so Flight Lieutenant Alan Pollock of Number 1 Squadron, the RAF's senior squadron, decided to hijack his own Hawker Hunter and fly it low and loud in protest over the Houses of Parliament, which he did. The Tower Bridge episode, which is what made the headlines, was only the end result of his antics as he nipped off down the Thames to get out of London as quickly as he could. Well, James and I had the huge privilege of meeting Alan in his Surrey garden on a warm summer's day during lockdown to hear his incredible story. And, and you were aiming for the Houses of Parliament? Yeah. Yeah. And I thought, sod it then, um, I'll wake the buggers up. And <laughs> I, because uh, also I had to turn tightly, because I didn't want to go near Buckingham Palace. Mm -hmm. I mean, you probably know, I mean, anything to do with the Queen is always a purple airway, and yeah. I could vaguely see where that was. Yeah. But, um, but I thought over the Palace of Westminster, I thought that was where to make the noise. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and then I was trying to look down and see where uh, Downing Street was, but yeah. found, found that not... That's very hard to find. We used to fly over London... Really? The, um, Seriously? We used to fly over London helicopters a lot. We used to do the heli lanes up and really? down the river. Yeah. And Isn't that I remember always trying to look for 10 Downing Street, and it's next to impossible to find. It, yeah. it just doesn't It doesn't stand out from the air. Maybe on purpose. It yeah. doesn't stand out from the air at all. It's, uh, mm. it's quite hard. So you decided to orbit... Circle overhead. Yeah, I, I think yeah, it just probably probably twice. I don't think. Yeah, maybe anymore. But you obviously yeah. had to put all your power on mm -hmm. then to do a tight, tight thing round. So I thought that'll wake them up. <laughs> uh, in it was really to you know let Parliament know. I think is in many ways, and I think they did get the message because two MPs actually straight away made statements in my defence. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it was interesting really. Now, rumour has it that at the time of the that you did this, they were discussing aircraft noise. That's right. In, yeah, it's strange, wasn't it? Strange coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> aircraft noise. So you did your three orbits, and that was it. That was that was your plan, mm. and you kind of achieved it. And thought you'd now get out of London by flying easterly down the down the river. Yes. So you head off now down the Thames. Yes, and was it, it was it was magical, really, because mm. I mean it was entrancing in many ways, um, crossing the various bridges and what have you and swinging round the, you know, because of the turns and what have you. Yeah. You dipped your wing, didn't you, at the RAF? Oh, well, it was just almost by accident, you know, there, because it was so close. And um, 
it was quite a magical experience, you know. When yeah. you you've flown the choppers yeah. there, and yes. you you know it's it's still I, I fly over it now and in really um, good in, in passenger aircraft, and it's, I still love flying over London. Mm. It's, there's still something amazing about flying right mm. over the middle of London. Mm. Yeah, uh, really albeit good. a little bit higher than you were, but uh, <laughs> yeah. <No. laughs> just a bit. Yeah. So what sort of height are you at now, Alan? You're about 250 knots, we reckon, do we? Or maybe more? Oh, I'd probably faster than that. Faster? Then. Yeah, right. I think once on the Thames, I think, I put the speed up. It was only if I was going over built-up area or, you okay. know, I didn't want, you know, anyone to have a heart attack or anything like no. that. Okay. So you now getting out of there, was that there? So put yeah, on the power. Yeah, right? and it was just, and then of course... Um, are you talking 100 feet? 200 feet? I don't know what height one would be. Yeah, I shouldn't think one's above 100 feet, I wouldn't Gosh. have thought, but I don't know. <laughs> because, I mean, we, we were especially tasked to be able to fly our, yes. yep. fly and at 100 feet. I mean, you couldn't fly, obviously, at 100 feet um, operationally, mm. yep. always at all, yep. because it was, you know, 100 feet's quite low, you know, when you're flying fast. And then, of course, you know, as you know, I was looking at St Paul's Cathedral and it had scaffolding around then. <laughs> and I was fascinated by, by that. And, I was, and then all of a sudden I was looked forward again. And, of course, I had no idea Tower Bridge was being there. <laughs> it had been there for several, several yeah, years. Yeah, but <laughs> you're quite right. But I had no idea that it would be there right in front of me, you know. And to me... The daft thing was, we were so used to uh, and training for different targets that, to me, it was just another little target that <laughs> came up, you know, that was quite interesting. Yeah. And, I mean, there were just seconds to think it through, literally. It was only about three seconds, I think, to sort out what I was going to do. And I, I went low down over the, I forget what you call it now, just this side of... Um, the west side of uh, Tower oh, Bridge, the, re it's, 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 the reach there, yeah. whatever it's called, and and I went right down low. Then just looked at it and decided quite quickly that the right thing to do is to fly as high as possible. There was this um, red bus coming from the north um, crossing, and. I thought, well, there's still plenty of room above that. If I <laughs> so you'd made the decision at this stage, I'm not going to go over. I'm going to go through. Yeah, it was quite. I mean, it's only literally two or three seconds, and it just seemed. I mean, you know, it sounded a bit odd, but it, it just seemed a very interesting target to me. <laughs> you know, because that's what we were doing all day and every day. Targeting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and how to how to do it, yes. and uh, so it seemed logical in a way, just yeah. to. All I was worried about, as I think I mentioned, was having the fin there because at the last second, um, as I flew under, I could see these ruddy great rivets or whatever you call them. <laughs> you know, they, they were so big, these rivets, and I, they seemed so close to me um, over my... So you'd gone purposely a little bit higher... Over, over my canopy. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to get, stay well clear of the bus <laughs> if I could, and um, that was crossing. And... Um, I, I had this amazing view as I went under of, as I say, the wide steel structure mm. at the top, which, um, you know, is where the, um, the passengers walk, sorry, the people crossing the bridge, you know, um, on foot go across. 
Um, and then at that second, seeing so much of this, I, I suddenly thought immediately that I'd got a fin behind, you see. My, my heart stopped with a kind of shock that I thought at any instant my fin's going to come off and I'm going to have to react bloody quickly, you know, at that level. And uh, then I was out the other side and everything was quite right. okay. And all I did then was, you know, just to go back um, various other places, back to Raynham. That was a fascinating afternoon listening to that. It was absolutely brilliant. It was the morning. Well, we started in the morning. 12 o'clock. But it was... Oh, I mean, he just has so many stories. I think we could have been there all day, actually, mm-hmm. if he'd let us. But you, he's just a person, inevitably, who has immense character. Because mm. if you do, if you are the sort of person who's going to do what he did and risk... He still ending. he still has a look of mischievousness about him. That's the, <laughs> yeah, I was going to say he'd have a twinkle. Yes, he yeah. still yeah. definitely did, yes. He knew what he'd done. Yeah. You know, he, he, yeah. was, he would do it again tomorrow as well. I think you get that... That, that well, that's what the RAF thought too, wasn't yes. it? Yeah. They, they thought that he was probably going mm. to do it again. Um, as you'll hear when you listen to the full interview in full flaps, which will uh, be available a week after this particular episode has dropped. So depending on when you're listening to this, it may be available right now. There was one thing which I forgot to ask Alan about, actually, James, which was there's this brilliant oil painting. I mean, that's the only visual record. It's yeah. really old-fashioned news before cameras, they would do an oil painting. Could you imagine today there'd Mm. be a million people? Every mobile phone would have it on, yeah. So much footage. There's not even a still photograph. So Michael Rondo painted this beautiful oil painting. Mm -hmm. Funnily enough, also an RAF pilot. He Mm -hmm. he flew Jaguars amongst many others. And he's done this beautiful painting, which uh, you'll be able to see on our various social media pages. Mm. And um, in it is a picture of a red London bus crossing the bridge, as it yep. was. Mm-hmm. It's got a number one on it, though, <laughs> in reference to number one squadron. <laughs> yeah. But also in the picture, if you look very carefully, is a cyclist. <laughs> now, the story is that this cyclist was the only, in inverted commas, casualty. Yes. Yeah, because he fell off his bike with the shock of this hunter going over the top. <laughs> and... Um, and ripped his trousers. Mm. And when Alan Pollock <laughs> heard about this, he, he, he got in touch and offered to pay for the No, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. The cyclist declined the offer, I think. Oh, oh, yes. I mean, he just classed. If he, if he couldn't have be, be, been even more of a legend. No, I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's just that's wonderful. So, yeah. so do listen out for the full flaps. And uh, once again, um, Alan Pollock, huge thanks. Absolutely uplifting and an extraordinary story. Right, chaps, you know what's coming now, don't you? Going yeah. home? Not quite. <laughs> There's no, no. one more major there can't be any. There can't be any quiz questions left, can there? <laughs> well, you're right. It's going to be a struggle. But it is time for the Top Landing Gear quiz. <laughs> okay, just let's hear what was it. Here we go. Your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. So fitting as well. From, <laughs> from from Top Gun. I've got some others you can hear if you like. Live for now. Okay. Jimbo? Mine comes from the um, It's not another stick shaker, is it? It's not a stick shaker. Although it might sound like one. <laughs> it's um it comes from the uh, the Puma Helicopters uh, mighty audio warning system. Oh yeah. And it is the warning of low height. Oh yes. 
It's supposed to sound better possibly than Possibly worse than the one you had last week, which is awful. <laughs> Has that ever helped you out of a difficult low height situation? No, because you normally cancel it just after you hear the no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, James, thank you. And Roy, what have you I... got this week? Maraca, <laughs> sorry. Now, my, my quiz has been really sabotaged this evening um, because uh, J- James came out with my Ray Hanna Spitfire fact, but let's let's try and reword this, because James, as he, remember, he told us about the Ray Hanna flying his Spitfire MH434 through a bridge. Oh, well, I didn't know the registration number. <laughs> well, it's, it's the one he always flew. It's the one he owned. <laughs> MH34. <laughs> Wrong. MH34. Okay, right. But he threw it under this old stone bridge, which had been built at the end of the 18th century in a stump for the TV series uh, about the Second World War, called... A piece of cake mm-hmm. made by London Weekend Television. Do you know where the bridge was? Or the name of the bridge? Yes, James. I'm guessing it was in Shropshire, was it? Iron Bridge or something like that? No, it wasn't Iron Bridge and it was a stone bridge. I think I made that quite Yeah, late. but it was near Iron Bridge. Iron Bridge is a place, not just a bridge. Mm. <laughs> yes, right. Was it, was right. it in Malaya? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, You'll get a bonus right. point there. <laughs> okay, good. Oh, okay. good. Hold on, let me just get the score sheet. Um, Jess, do you want to have a go? Give me a count. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. <laughs> I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's not the buzzer we were presenting with the start of the quiz. No, I said I had three. It's All the right. buzzer's longer than the answer. It's quite embarrassing. <laughs> Is it Stony Bridge? <laughs> no, I like that answer, though. That's nice. No, it was called Winston Bridge. Oh. It's on the B6274, just west of Darlington, <laughs> on the River Tees. Oh, my God, I can't believe we didn't get that. No, no that's <laughs> on the River Tees. Right, let's do a Hawker Hunter question. Okay. Like the Spitfire... The Hawker Hunter had success in a number of variants, but unlike the Spitfire, there is only one report of a hunter achieving an air-to-air kill in British service. It happened during a conflict in the early to mid-1960s. Does anyone want to have a guess at what that conflict might have been? (laughs) I can give you some clues, some more info, if you'd like me to carry on. You might need to carry on. Okay. Um, Is is that British? It's the British Hunter, so an RAF service. Correct. Apparently, a hunter got into a manoeuvring contest with a MiG-17, which resulted in the MiG pilot flying his aircraft into the ground. But So that was it. I, that was the I only know, air-to-air combat. Right, you stay out of that because you, you've done your research and you know this. So Joe's <laughs> going to very kindly stay quiet. Otherwise, we have no quiz this week. I know that's what you all want. <laughs> so the latter stages of this conflict, which ran from 1963 to 66, was known as Operation Claris. But what was the conflict in question? I'll give you another clue. The MiGs were from Indonesia. Yes, was it the Malayan emergency? <laughs> by any chance whatsoever. No, it wasn't. The Malayan emergency, as you should know by now, ran from 1948 until 1960. This happened in 63 to 65, 66. But it's a good effort, Jim. Good effort. Shall I tell you what it was? Well, get Jess. Get his moment. No, I'm not, not, no, he's said enough. You I said you would let me answer this. If come, I, on. come on. It was a little <laughs> was a little conflagration between Indonesia and Malaya. Zia, by the stage. Uh, where well, the, no, that's the whole point. Was it actually Malaya? You've got, you've got it wrong. So, right. all right, no points for you either. You keep doing this. You do your research and then you can't answer the question. It was the <laughs> Borneo confrontation, which was all about the formation of a new state of 
Malaysia, which was, this is before Malaysia happened in 63. So it was the amalgamation of the Federation of Malaya, Singapore, North Borneo and Sarawak. And thanks in part to the Hawker Hunter and a vast array of RAF aircraft that were sent out there, um, Indian, Indonesia's opposition didn't bear fruit and Malaysia was formed on the 16th of September 1963. Interestingly... <laughs> In Indonesia you say will, will be the judge of that. Amazingly, then, right. Indonesia didn't formally Jess, recognize Malaysia. He's fallen asleep. Indonesia didn't formally recognize Malaysia until 1966, which is extraordinary That's considering amazing. the amount of times they must have met. I don't even know what the answer Brilliant. was. Uh, the, it was the Borneo confrontation. Yeah, right, okay. right, whilst Alan Pollock's flight <laughs> under the span of Tower Bridge was the most spectacular, there have been others. What was the most recent and possibly most high-profile flight through Tower Bridge? James Cutler. It was a helichopper going through for the 2012 Olympic opening ceremony. Well done, James. I was going to say that. Spot on. Yeah, I wasn't impressed. Two helicopters, actually, because there was a squirrel camera helicopter, Mm. camera ship, and the the big one it was filming was an Augusta Westland AW139, or Leonardo, they call that, aren't they? Are they? Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. Well done. Um... Hunters have appeared in several films, including Modesty Blaze and The Lord of the Flies. A Dutch-built F6, which you talked a little about, Jez, appeared in a couple of James Bond films, mocked up to look like something else. Name either of the films. You can have one chance. Yes, James. Thunderball. Incorrect. Oh, it was going to be mine. I'm glad I didn't say that. <laughs> Jez. Just name, an, just name a Bond film. Uh, the Man with the Golden Gun. Correct. Correct for one. Uh, Roy, I'll give you an opportunity. Thumbs up forever. No, sorry. The other one was Octopussy. The Hunter is powered by the Rolls-Royce Avon turbojet. Yes, it is. Which airliner also used the Avon, having originally been fitted with four DH Ghosts? (laughs) Yes, James. The Comet. Correct. I knew that as well. Oh, it was oh. indeed the Why didn't you work? Comet. Damn. You, you have this problem every single week. <laughs> well, I'm so interested by the question, I forget to put my phone on. <laughs> You've just slagged me off my question. Well, that was quite a good one. That's a good quiz. That, that was a good question, that, that last one. It wasn't oh, very high scoring, was it? No. Apart from I thought you were when are they ever high scoring? <laughs> no, well, let's go through those scores on the doors. Here we are. Uh, in joint last place, with one point each, Roy and Jez. Well, and our winner once again with two... The expert. Double your <laughs> scores. Double. James Garner, the expert. Well done, James. Well done. Almost impressive. Yeah. Well done. Well, done, you well it's been a fascinating podcast this week. We've covered The Hunter and we've covered some amazing audaciousness or yeah. audacity. It's been yeah. absolutely incredible. So um, thank you very much, everyone around the table here. Thank you for listening at home. And remember, you can still hear all our earlier podcasts and their full flaps extended interviews featuring former RAF Red Arrows synchro pair leader, squadron leader Dave Thomas, Voltbiz Jim Schofield on the Spitfire, adventure pilot Amanda J. Harrison and her attempt at emulating Amy Johnson's solo flight to Darwin, as well as John Hutchinson on Concord and George Smokey Bacon on the British air show scene, which is opening up at last. And remember, there are loads of places you can go online to check out the latest air show and virtual air show news, such as BritishAirShows.com, Flightline UK, MilitaryAirShows.co.uk, the British Air Display Association website, and indeed many more. 
So coming up in future episodes of Top Landing Gear with the news that British Airways have retired their entire fleet of 747-400s as we've discussed, we're planning our own tribute to the Queen of the Skies involving another fairly audacious bit of flying. And looking further ahead, we're planning on getting out and about to the country's air shows and aviation museums and visiting some of the brilliant display teams out there, both RAF and private operators. We're going to take a, a little bit of rest in between doing that and have a few little weeks off. One or two of us are lucky enough to have a holiday. So uh, in the meantime, let us know anything or anyone you'd like us to feature and we'll try and make it happen. And remember, you can get in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Top Landing Gear. And we're going to persevere with our plea to get you to email us with your questions for our expert, James Gartner, if only to make him think that his part in this podcast is valued in any way. It's info at Top Landing Gear. Two Gs. And however you're listening to us, please do leave. Dot com. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Info at toplandinggear.com. He, he does have Two a G's. role. He does have a role. I have to say dot com every time you forget well it. Done. Well done. And however you're listening to us, please do leave a review, especially if you've enjoyed it. And don't forget to listen out for Alan Pollock's extended interview on Full Flaps. In the meantime, thanks for listening. And bye for now. That was the longest outro ever. It was long. There's a lot in there. I don't know if I'm going to say James and I have come to the home of someone who has become a, a legend in wow. his own lifetime. I wouldn't say he, that, but... We would say that. He's denying it already. Mm. Uh, he is Flight Lieutenant Alan Pollock, who committed one of the most audacious acts in British aviation history when he flew his Hawker Hunter jet fighter through Tower Bridge. This was in 1968. He, has, he had a bit of grievance with things that were going on at the time. Alan, it's so lovely to be with you here in your gorgeous garden on a hot summer's day. Just remind us of the background to this legendary flight of yours. Well, um, where to start? <laughs> <laughs> I was just very fortunate to end up, even though I only had 15 years in the Air Force, but I was lucky often to be in the right places because after... Um, doing my hunter conversion at Chivna, I went out to second TAF and that was extremely good and even though there were cuts then and this squadron, 26 squadron that I started with, it was at Oldenburg to start with and then I went up to Yeva so I was on both the wings out there and um, you know I, it was just a very good spirit there um, over in RAF Germany or second tactical air force and then somehow at the end of that tour, regardless of the fact that he was advised the other way, I think partly because we'd won the gunnery competition <laughs> as a squadron, I went up for an interview with the CNC, and he must be in a bit desperate because I was chosen as his aide-de-camp, you know, his ADC, ADC. Yep. and really I didn't want that at all. That was a ground tour, effectively. Yes, yeah. but what was splendid was uh, he was in his last... It was Sir Humphrey Edwards-Jones, and he'd done well on the fighter side. In, in, he'd been a, a squadron commander in the Battle of Britain and beyond. He really was on his last year and knew that. Mm -hmm. So quite a lot of the time, he was back in UK. And as soon as he beetled off, I'd leave and, and go, go flying. And it was great, really. And that was going flying in anything that was... Yes, yeah. And I got checked out in the Javelin and the... Oh the meters nf11 and 14 and 
this well the seven a uh, bit and um flew the swift and uh oh and <laughs> what was lovely one day the no that was later when i was up at valley a french test pilot came in with it was a fugo and i was asked to fly him oh, wow. was that the old magister with the that's right tail? yeah mm. and it was intriguing really because after i'd um landed with him i said okay right um that's your trip now you you let me fly the the fuga and he let me go off it in my um by myself oh, wow. but goodness me i nearly aborted the takeoff because <laughs> there was so little power there with the two i forget what they were the marmoray whatever they were the the little engines yeah because i let go with full throttle uh you know the parking brake and um for a, for at least 10 or 15 seconds it seemed i was trundling and i thought <laughs> there's something wrong you know that's lack of power but of course it was just normal yeah and eventually got off all right and, <laughs> so i said that those you're just sitting on a box basically is it is this the seat of a magister is a yeah is it's right? interesting that but it was seemed um i suppose in a way you know it was interesting what made good trainers in yes, a day yeah. away wasn't it um, but I was very lucky to have have the um, started with a chipmunk, and then the jet provost came in, and then the Balliol, mm -hmm. and the Balliol was marvellous. You know, as a nineteen-year-old, as a young nineteen-year-old, um, you know, snaking your way up the promoter track with um, with a Merlin up the front, yes. and particularly at night, and you know. <laughs> The exhaust, uh, you could see oh. the exhaust stubs mm, and what have you. You really felt you were cooking with gas. Yeah. But that gave me quite a lot of confidence before I got my wings, you know, to have whatever it was, four or five types. Yeah. Um, and that's why I, I got used to jumping in different people's aircraft. I mean, well, you, the, the you Navy, were, sorry. Sorry, you, no. you were classed as an exceptional Oh, point. well, look, you couldn't me. If you've read something... Uh, <laughs> it's all wrong. Um, I was only once. Uh, it was when I was up at Valley. I ended up there, you know, getting more and more flying early on, and starting the second squadron there. And um, I think because the Nat had a bad name to start with, a lot of people didn't want to go on it to start with. But I loved the thing, you know. I think it was really good. Could it bite if you got it wrong? No, oh yeah, we bit. Yeah. Yes, that's interesting. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. You're right because the original one was the midge. It was. <laughs> it, it was, wasn't it? Yes. Okay, your knowledge is good. Yeah, yeah. Let's come on to that a little Sorry. bit later. No, yeah. What no. I'd love to do, really, and yeah. um, is just for you to recall the the lead up to April the fifth, nineteen sixty eight. So April the first should have been the celebration of the fiftieth anniversary of the RAF, but nothing had really been it was cancelled and it was denied later but i knew because i knew um the leader of the arrows then and um other people and um i was able to to check that it had been planned or talked about but of course at the same time believe it or not without my knowing it was the week and in fact the days of the wilson plot that came out to overthrow Harold Wilson. That's right. Yeah, which obviously he was probably feeling the heat a bit then. But <laughs> it was partly the fact of the, the cancellations. You see, TSR two had been yeah. cancelled, mm -hmm. 
the HS, uh, what was it, 1182, wasn't it? The, the Supersonic Spitfire. Have, have I got that wrong? Oh, yeah. 1184, wasn't it? Yeah. And also the Armstrong Whitworth thing that was um, going to be a, you know, a, a veto-type transport, that, that was cancelled too. And there was a lot, there was a fair amount of ill feeling, and, and it wasn't just the Air Force, it was the services in general. I was very lucky, really, to end up on one squadron because we had a very good role then. We were the NATO and response squadron, if anything went wrong anywhere, to go out straight away. We had the same thing on the Pumas, we were on 33 squadron. We were, uh, really? We were That's called right. AMF, Ace Mobile Force. Yeah. So it was the Allied Command Europe it, Mobile Force, where we could... Yeah, jolly good, because that anyway. changed its name two or three times, but yeah. ended up, you're quite right, I think you tended to get the people that had done well on yeah. their advanced training. Yeah. And, uh, oh, no, it, we we had a super role there, and, you know, to be try and be ready for anything on the armament side. So April 1968, <clears throat> no fly past to mark the 50th anniversary no. of the RAF. You were at number one squadron, the most, the senior squadron of the RAF. And you, like many others, I think, took exception to this. So you, you decided to get airborne with your leaflets to drop on, on neighbouring yeah. airfields just to, uh, sort yes. of to mark the anniversary. Two of them uh, immediately rang up. And it was quite good practice, you know, to give to somebody and just talk to them, brief them how to do it. Well, how and did you also, do it? Sorry? How did you drop oh, you leaflets put them, from a Hawker You could do it in, in the flaps, you could put leaflets. <laughs> You know, just um, so after start-up, um, you just briefed the ground crew to watch what they were doing. And just with 10 flap, and they'd put them in uh, after start-up. Yeah. And then you'd close the flaps? Yeah, that's right. And they'd, they'd, they'd be fine then. And likewise, you could, you, you know, you could put bog rolls in the... In the, the air brake. Air brake, mm. yeah. Which you also did. Yeah, it sounds a bit silly, but it, it was quite—it <laughs> was um, quite easy to do, and yeah. we we had congratulatory. I think Chivner and Valley immediately rang the CO up. The only complaints he had was not from. Was it Watersham that complained? That's the right. Lightning yeah, was it, you're right, and it, they were the lightning, the two lightning places that I just—I think I'd just flown over, I think, from memory. <laughs> Uh, on the way back, because um, I thought I'd just wake them up, and <laughs> and uh, God, it was funny after I landed too, because I got through to the lady on the exchange, you know, telephone operator, and I, and she said, "Look, I'm sorry, there's going to be a slight delay, something I've never known in all my service." She said, "I've had two lightning calls." Uh, uh, you know, the it's a high priority it, call. Yes, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> it was funny, really. It was yeah. there for wartime only, I thought. <laughs> what was this? Because of these rogue hunters flying? Yeah, that's right. With leaflets and I think that's right. You see, it would look dangerous to lightning people mm. because of the wing loading they had. Mm. Well, they did do a retaliatory run on West Raynham, didn't they? One. Yeah, it's clever of you to remember that. I'd forgotten that, but you're well, quite I, right. I read it this morning. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well done. It wasn't as accurate as your draw. So that was April the 1st itself, the, the actual day that marked the 50th anniversary. That's right. But and that still wasn't uh, enough, obviously, from your point of view. Well, no, in fact, um, then uh, it, was a, it was a night of the 4th, I think, wasn't it? I was down at Tangmere. Mm-hmm. 
and the other new flight commander flew the four of us down. So the four hunters? Yeah, to overfly Chichester at a particular time for a parade. And that went well. Yeah. And then we landed there, and there was a party there that night. And the AOC of 38 group was there. Right. And I don't like repeating this in a way, but his, his wife did not know why she was there. And I thought it was amazing, really, because it was quite a long journey for him to come down. And um, I realised that an awful lot of people just didn't know what was happening that didn't week. Didn't know it was the 50th anniversary. Yeah, and that was sort of something that was running through my head. And the other thing, of course, is I'd had these ruddy drugs, which were dangerous, actually. They well, were... you were suffering from a really bad cold, weren't you? That's so right. You'd... Goodness You've me. then taken some pretty strong medication, which may have affected your judgment. Anti, well, I don't know about that. It was anti- <laughs> antihistamines. I mean, really, they, I think they more or less um, had strange effects. Yeah, yeah. that stopped me sleeping or something like that. Yeah. And, that, and, and a bit of champagne at the party. Oh, yeah. There was a touch of that. Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> yeah. And then the plan the next day was to fly back to West Raynham. That's that right, yeah. And the very strange thing that... I don't know whether I ever mentioned that, but I went to bed at two or so, I don't know, I can't remember, but it was just after two, I think, and I I had something that never happened to me at any other stage, whether it's the drugs or the paranormal or whatever you call it. Were you hallucinating? Well, no, it was odd, really, but, you know, I had uh, an intense feeling of evil, which never, ever happened to me before, and it was really strange. And, you know, at that very time... You know, within 15 minutes of that either way, I forget. But it was virtually the same as um, Martin Luther King was assassinated. Really? And wow. it was such a strange coincidence. It was really eerie. You know, when I read in the papers mm-hmm. uh, that that had happened and worked out, because I think oh. that was Memphis, I think he was, wasn't it, from memory? He was visiting, I think. Yeah when he was shot dead and it was strange because of the difference in timing yeah. but uh, well I suppose when I woke up and it, I was just going to be number four from memory and the boss was as uh, Spike Jones was number five when we were returning and then all that was going through my head um, the other flight commander was leading because I was going to take the squadron out to Aden. So he was leading, and then what was in my mind was I didn't want to declare exactly what idea I had. So you'd, you'd thought this idea up over some period of time? or was No, it... no, it was really that night and the morning. But you're quite right, I'd had this very heavy cold, and so that I could fly, I took, I got from the, the doctor these uh, Series A, <laughs> believe it or not, antihistamines. I, whether they were something new, I don't know. But I'd always had slightly strange things when I had drugs. You yeah. know, I, I was a bit anti or any form of tablets. And whether these affected me in a way, I don't know. But A, I really didn't get much sleep that night. Um, and B, they subsequently, because I, I, I got quite fired up about this, because I felt they were people had dangerous side effects and very quickly you know within two or three or four years it all came out because Mm -hmm. I mean um, whatever you right called it dangerous side effects weren't even thought about Mm -hmm. then 
and then gradually it all came in in the next five or ten years. But um, well, going back to that morning, um, what was uh, slightly fussing me was how to leave the others without telling them what I was doing. Your, so. your plan being, just just tell us, remind us what the plan was in your head that morning. Well, I, th I thought I would fly over London because I thought that was the right thing to do mm -hmm. in many ways, just to um, show that we'd still got a fighting service. Yeah. And, um, and Buzz Westminster. Dear, yeah, yeah, and dear old Mr Beach, you know, when <laughs> I had this AA book because once I opened that, I thought, what a crazy idea. Because <laughs> if you ever ever find one of those old AA books, I mean, you know, it, it, it just I very nearly... Aborted straight away. Just by looking you know. at the map. Yeah, because you, I mean, you didn't have a chart for the area you wanted to. No, fly over, no, right? but I, I, I had my quarter-inch map. Mm -hmm. You departed Tangmere as a five ship. That's right, and yeah. I was the boss was a loose number five. Right. And in a way, he solved my position, my problem straight away because he decided um, just to fly over Tangmere before he left. Uh, as we that's yeah. right yeah and i thought that's fine because as soon as he turned he was uh, behind you. one way yeah. yeah so that means he wasn't watching and then um being number four you see as soon as we turned um onto the heading i just um closed my throttle and went right down low uh as soon as almost we just after we lifted off okay um, and, you know, I wasn't pulling, I, I just had bank on and it was slowly turning, but I, I kept low and I, I then just waited a minute or so and probably just over a minute and a minute and a half, something like that, and just get, gave the speechless code. Mm -hmm. You get questioned by the other person, yeah. you know, in the yeah. tar or something like that and um, uh, just explained that you know, in a way, I'd lost contact. So that was by some clicks, was it, on the RT? Yeah, you yeah. pressed uh, from, I think there were five. Four. I think four you went four. five. Or five, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it was four or five, I mm. forget. Um, you you did transmission just like that, and that meant you'd gone speechless. You know, that was fine. I mean, off they went, and not, uh, they were out of the way then. As I said, I just um, flew very slowly over the, over any, If I, I thought the, Safest thing to do was to fly low. Did you route up through Dunsfold? Did you say was that? Something? Oh, sorry, that was on the route. Yeah, on the way in. So yeah, and here. I thought Dunsfold. <laughs> yeah, because that was the home of the hunter in many ways. Yeah, yeah. And then up into southwest London. Yeah, you're right. What, what sort of height would you have been flying at? You said you kept low. Oh, I don't know. But I didn't want to upset people, but uh, <laughs> but again, not flying when you're flying slowly. You know that, uh, and slowly, uh, 200 knots, talking to 250? Yes, yeah, probably, yeah, might have been 250, I don't yeah. know. That was, uh, you know, when I was very low. And then, of course, once uh, I turned um, towards the Thames after, from the reservoir, you know, just to the southeast of Heathrow, uh, it was obviously made sense to just follow the Thames. Yeah. And I was surprised how many loops there were in the Thames. <laughs> it's not a, but I've it tried was, it in a flight simulator. It's not an right. easy thing to, to, to follow the actual Thames. It's quite a hard... Uh, yeah, but it was yeah. quite quite interesting, really, and, and it was... I It just felt, as I think I probably wrote down, it just felt like sort of Gulliver's Travellers looking down at... A, <laughs> uh, it was just like a model village. Yes, yeah. yeah. I was fascinated in many ways yeah. uh, by the bridges yeah. uh, that there were. And, and you were aiming for the Houses of Parliament? 
year. Yeah. And I thought, sod it then, um, I'll wake the buggers up. And <laughs> I, because uh, also I had to turn tightly. Because I didn't want to go near Buckingham Palace. Mm-hmm. I mean, you probably know, I mean, anything to do with the Queen is always a purple airway. And yeah. I could vaguely see where that was. Yeah. But, um, but I thought over the Palace of Westminster, I thought that was where to make the noise. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then I was trying to look down and see where... Uh, Downing Street was but yeah. found, found that not that's very hard to find we used to fly over London really the, um, seriously we used to fly over London helicopters a lot we used to do the heli lanes up and really? down the river yeah and isn't that I remember always trying to look for 10 Downing Street and it's next to impossible to find it, yeah. it just doesn't it doesn't stand out from the air maybe on purpose it yeah. doesn't stand out from the air at all it's, uh, mm. it's quite hard so you decided to orbit circle overhead yeah I, I think yeah, it the just Parliament, probably t- probably twice I don't think yeah maybe anymore but you obviously yeah. had to put all your power on mm-hmm. then to do a tight tight thing round. so I thought that'll wake them up <laughs> uh, in it was really to you know let Parliament know I think there's many ways and I think they did get the message because two MPs actually straight away made statements in my defense yeah. you know mm-hmm. it was interesting really now, rumour has it that at the time of the that you did this, they were discussing aircraft noise. That's right. In, yeah, it's strange, in wasn't it? Strange coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> aircraft noise. So you did your three orbits, and that was it. That was that was your plan, mm. and you kind of achieved it. And thought you'd now get out of London by flying easterly down the down the river. Yes. So you head off now down the Thames. Yes, and was it, it was it was magical, really, because mm. I mean it was entrancing in many ways, um, crossing the various bridges and what have you and swinging round the, you know, because of the turns and what have you. Yeah. You dipped your wing, didn't you, at the RAF? Oh, well, it was just almost by accident, you know, there because it was so close and um, it was quite a magical experience, you know, when yeah. you, you've flown the choppers yeah. there and yes. you, you know it's... It's still, I, I fly over it now and... In, really um, good. In, in passenger aircraft, and it's, I still love flying over London. Mm. It's, there's still something amazing about flying right mm. over the middle of London. Mm. Yeah, uh, really albeit good. a little bit higher than you were, but uh, <laughs> yeah. <No. laughs> just a bit. Yeah. So, what sort of height are you at now, Alan? You're about 250 knots, we reckon, do we? Or maybe more oh, I'd probably that. faster than that. Faster. Then. Yeah, right. I think once on the Thames, I think I put the speed up. It was only if I was going over um, built-up yeah. area, yeah. or you okay. know, I didn't want. You know, anyone to have a heart attack or anything like no. that. Okay. So you now getting out of there was that there? So put yeah, on the power. Yeah, right? and it was just, and then of course. Um, Are you talking a hundred feet? Two hundred feet? I don't know what height one would be. Yeah, I shouldn't think one's above hundred feet. I wouldn't Gosh. have thought, but I don't know. <laughs> because I mean, we we were especially tasked to be able to fly our yes. fly and at hundred feet. I mean, you couldn't fly it, obviously. At 100 feet, um, operationally, mm. yeah. always at all, yeah. because it was, you know, 100 feet's quite low, you know, when you're flying fast. And then, of course, you know, as you know, I was looking at St Paul's Cathedral, and it had scaffolding round then. <laughs> and I was fascinated by, by that. And I was, and then all of a sudden, I was, looked forward again, and of course, I had no idea Tower Bridge was being there. <laughs> It had been there for several, several yeah, years. Yeah, but <laughs> you're quite right. But I had no idea that it would be there right in front of me, you know. And to me, 
the daft thing was we were so used to uh, and training for different targets that to me it was just another little target that would come up you know that was quite interesting yeah. and I mean there were just seconds to think it through literally it was only about three seconds I think to sort out what I was going to do and I, I went low down over the I forget what you call it now just this side of um, the west side of uh, Tower oh, Bridge the, reach, the reach there yeah. whatever it's called and and I went right down low then, just looked at it and decided quite quickly that the right thing to do was to fly as high as possible. There was this um, red bus coming from the north um, crossing and I thought, well, there's still plenty of room above that <laughs> if I... So you'd made the decision at this stage, I'm not going to go over, I'm going to go through. Yeah, it was quite... I mean, it's only literally two or three seconds and it just seemed, I mean... You know, it sounded a bit odd, but it, it just seemed a very interesting target to me. <laughs> you know, because that's what we were doing all day and every day. Target, yeah. <laughs> and how to how to do it, and uh, so it seemed logical in a way. Just to, all I was worried about, as I think I mentioned, was having the fin there because at the last second, um, as I flew under. I could see these ruddy great rivets or whatever you call them. <laughs> you know, they, they were so big, these rivets, and I, they seemed co so close to me um, over my... So you'd gone purposely a little bit higher... Over, over my canopy. Yeah. yeah, I wanted to get, stay well clear of the bus mm. if I could, and um, that was crossing. And um, I, I had this amazing view as I went under of, as I say, the wide steel structure mm. at the top which, um, you know, is where the, um, the passengers walk, sorry, the people that crossing the bridge, you know, um, on foot go across. Um, and then at that second, seeing so much of this, I, I suddenly thought immediately that I'd got a fin behind, you see. My, my heart stopped with a kind of shock that I thought at any instant my fin's going to come off and I'm going to have to react bloody quickly, yeah. you know, at that level. And uh, then I was out the other side yeah. and everything was quite Still okay. Right. And all I did then was, you know, just to go back um, various other places, back to Raynham. So, so you exited out along the river to the Thames Estuary sort of way? Yes, to Hornchurch, Cross near Hornchurch. I think it <clears throat> might even be called Hornchurch Reach, I'm not quite mm. certain. Where I just turned to the northeast to Clacton, yep. and then uh, to keep clear of everywhere, and, and then flew round these other two or three places en route. Did you at this at this point? Did you expect that was your last ever flight with the RAF? Or, or well, did I didn't you... think it would improve my chances. <laughs> of uh, no, I, it's funny, really. I mean. When I did get my exceptional rating up at up at Valley, it was strange, really, because <laughs> um, believe it or not, I was in front of the station commander one day, and then all of a sudden the the CNC was coming in and wanted to fly the nat, and by then I'd got most nat flying experience. So I suddenly went from the trouble I'd been in to his <laughs> ringing up and saying, "Would I fly, dear old oh Gus Walker?" <laughs> You know, got one arm, and he had a. I think you might 
might know the story. Sir Augustus Walker, he was then CNC of Flying Training Command. And it, it was funny, the, the, the sudden reversal. <laughs> All of a sudden, you know, from being deeply in the dwang. Yeah. I was then asked to, to fly him the, the next morning. But life's like that. So just talk us through, you. once you've gone down the Thames, you then decided you, you'd buzz a couple more RAF airfields on the way on the way well, back and, to and, and 492, yeah, our, I thought I'd go to let the Americans know where we were. Mm -hmm. And uh, and you adopted a new call sign, I, I believe, at this stage? Well, it seemed to make sense, yeah, <laughs> because uh, uh, just to put them off, really, and the people. And the call sign you. being? Well, I just, Romeo Alpha Foxtrot 01. <laughs> uh, yeah, RAF 01. Lovely. But it was only for the, you know, I don't know why that thought went through my head. <laughs> yeah. You know, and fuel was running pretty low by the time you were approaching West Raynham. Well, yeah, I didn't want. I only did a rather inadequate inverted flyby because I. <laughs> Why inadequate? In what way was it inadequate? <laughs> well, it was um, probably slow, and uh, then I I just did an inverted flight over the squadron hangars, and then just turned downwind. Mm -hmm. um, but quite carefully, because below the hunter, if you if you were below two fifty a side, mm. two fifty pounds on either side, you, yeah. you you couldn't really accelerate and put all your power on at, at a high angle of attack. So even turn, what if you needed turning to do down, go around, you mean? Well, no, it was oh. more. You had to be careful about uh, about how so you yeah, how yeah. you flew at oh, very okay. low fuel states. Okay. So normally people were landing with 300 aside. Right. Yeah. And what were the thoughts going through your head at this time? You're, you're about to land the aircraft. You must be, as James alluded to, you must be thinking that's probably the last time I'll be flying for the RAF. I don't think I really thought about that uh, too much. I realised it, you know, might have consequences. <laughs> But um, but you were you were still fairly sort of you were in protest mode if you like at the time you were you were sort of well legitimately protesting that that the RAF hadn't had oh yeah its and, day out and don't get me wrong because um, an awful lot of other people really in the service felt the same way mm -hmm. and they'd also because it was really almost officially denied um, that they had originally looked at planning a. 50th anniversary flight yeah. pass. But I knew from the Far East, um, uh, someone I knew quite well that was uh, on a squadron out there. I think he was in command of this, one of the, the squadrons out there. I mean, he, he let me know too that um, they'd um, jibbed a bit about the situation being not being very good and being told the wrong things too. So, I, I, was, I wasn't on my own in many ways about feeling the way I did. No. So you landed at West Raynham, taxied in? Taxied fairly slowly in, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about what might happen, but... Oh, it was jolly good, really. And I assume everyone who met you immediately were all on side, your, your ground crew and the, um, the squadron guys? Well, I, don't, I, don't think, um, I don't think the ground crew knew, I don't think. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but I just slowly went up the stairs and went in and the station commander was there and, and the boss and what have you. And I thought they were pretty good, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, they knew what had happened then. 
And uh, so the news had travelled pretty quickly that a Hawker Hundred buzzed Houses of Parliament, thrown flown through Tower Bridge, and apparently in the crew room at Chivener, which was a hunter base, I think, wasn't it, in, in Devon. Everyone, when the news came through, looked at each other, and to a man, apparently, they went Pollock. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm doubtful about that story. <laughs> that Mike Rondo said that, didn't he? But yeah, he did. I, yeah, I, Mike Rondo, who painted the wonderful oh, yeah. picture of, of your passing through Tower Bridge. It's well, the only visual record we have of it. Yeah, and I've got a lovely one of the the yellow gnat um, yes. that he painted for me. Yeah. Mike Rondo was very, very good. Yes. And he flew Jaguars, as you know, mm. yeah. later. Um, yeah, goodness me, that uh, his artistry is dramatically good, I think. Mm. He was the only person, I think, that could actually um, paint hunters that looked like hunters, yeah. you know, because it was so good. Such a good-looking, fine-looking aircraft, so aerodynamically, almost looked sort of perfect yeah. in many ways, yeah. the design. Yes. That um, it was very difficult to paint, I think. Mm. But Mike Rondo certainly could paint. Yeah. But his story, I think, is a bit specious do myself. You, do you, <laughs> I have spoken to him at some length about it. We might come on to that in a moment because I just want to get back to your your arrival at West Raynham. Didn't you? Wasn't one of the first things you did to burn your map? Yes, was it, it the was, AA map or another? No, your no, chart? it was my. It was all. Um, I suppose I'd been using it for some time, and I just. I think I'd quickly put some headings on and. The whole thing was a bit crumpled, and in my head, I didn't think it was very professional. To, <laughs> I, I thought, goodness me, I was gonna, there's going to be a court martial or something like that. I don't want some senior person looking at this. Dragging out this map. <laughs> yeah, so, so that was through my head, and I just uh, borrowed, borrowed some matches from... It might have been a silly thing to do, I don't know, but it's through my head. I, I didn't want that as evidence, you know, of how... Uh, it just seemed a bit incompetent to have a map like that. Uh, so that was the story on the map. Yeah. And so then you, you handed yourself in. Is that right? Did you suggest to the senior officers there, well, you might as well arrest me now? I was quite impressed with the station commander and, the, and my boss, you know. They were pretty cool about it, I thought. Um, you know, and... Uh, and you're right, then I, yeah, and then I was up in the officer's mess. I rang, I was able to ring my mother-in-law, who I thought was the right person to sort of just to <laughs> let know. interesting. There might be some, some flak coming. To tell everyone, yeah, there might be problems. And, um, and I said to let them know that I might be not in my normal place for two or three days. And then I was a bit naughty, really, because if you were in the mess and that, I think I was—I think I had to stay in my room or something like that. I think there was an officer looking after, in a way that I didn't go and escape or something. I suppose. So I you, were, you were under close arrest. Yeah, I suppose it was for a day or a couple mm. of days. I don't know, but of course, I, being a bit evil, I—I uh, <laughs> I sucked him into a room and then locked him. <laughs> <laughs> Locked him in this room, and then I thought it wasn't very sporting, and uh, <laughs> thought, yeah, it was funny, really. That was dear old David Ainge. Yeah, who I knew quite well. You know, I thought, you mustn't take advantage of 
friends that can be easily be suckered like that. <laughs> and so the next thing was you would expect you expected to get a court martial, but that didn't happen, did it? No, I think for various reasons it was quite interesting, because I I, I don't think the government were too happy about the whole thing, and you know as I say. Whether or not it affected things, this fact that that very week, uh, the um, Wilson. Wilson coup plot, yeah. you know, where they were actually talking about whether or not that affected... So they were worried that a, that a court-martial would be a public sort of... Yeah, that's right. A, a chance for you to give, give your case and... For that's right, about up. what had gone wrong and mm-hmm. what yeah. what was happening and the cancellations and the feelings. Is, because it wasn't just the Air Force. I mean, other people, other services too had had the... Cuts, sorry, defence cuts. So, in denying you the court martial, they invalided out you. Out well, of the that was partly true, really, because I had this. Whether or not, I think it was these ruddy things, these um, uh, antihistamine things. Because it was Good. pneumonia in the end, wasn't it? You had. That's right. It was yeah, serious. you had. Yeah, you're quite right. But they really stifled you. They they denied you the opportunity to to make that point of why you'd done that protest flight. Down well, the yes, but I don't know. I think it was bound to happen in a way. Mm. Do you think your message got out? Anyway, did everyone at the time know why you'd done it? And oh, and, well, I think it was probably fairly obvious. Yeah, you know, mm. I think. But uh, you know, because the services weren't that happy about all those cuts, yeah. mm. and that was right the way across. Because in fact, I think I had. It was rather splendid because I. I had 102 letters, I think it was. Really? Yeah, and I think at least two, I think, were from the Navy. And what was the general reaction, do you think, of, of fellow pilots and other members uh, of I the Air Force? I really don't know too much about that. They, they must have thought good on him, predominantly, didn't they? Even if some of them weren't prepared to admit it. Well... Oh, it's a cracking maybe. bit of flying. Mm, well, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, I don't think it was any... Because we were, you know, all day and every day we were at low-level... You know, so I don't think it was anything that special about about it in many ways. Should we just let this little chap go over? <laughs> Giving his own salute. Mm. Yeah, that's good. This guy's been fairly quiet, I think. Yeah. Over Cranley, from the usual Gatwick. No, Rangers. you're right. Uh, we've noticed it. Yeah. Yeah, because you've probably noticed it too, haven't you? Yes. Um, your last flight was from Heathrow into Gatwick, wasn't it? That was it? my last really? flight. I, I, I did that about, about four weeks ago. Yeah, three weeks ago. Really? Yes. And when you say it was your last flight? I said, no, the last flight I did. The, the, oh, yeah. The, the last oh, flight jolly flight. good. Yeah, we hope yeah. it. We don't know. <laughs> yeah. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> um, Mike Rondo, who I spoke to, the, the artist who did this wonderful picture, also told me that apparently at the in 88 which would have been, or maybe it was later than that, around the time of maybe the 70th anniversary of, yeah. of the RAF, a signal went to all frontline squadrons to warn them that Alan Pollock might be on the loose and be prepared to take one of the aircraft and repeat his feat of 1968. Oh, <laughs> Apparently that's, that's genuine. There was a genuine signal Go going around warning frontline squadrons to be on the lookout <laughs> for Alan Pollock. That, that's a... You know, you're reminding me of something that might have gone through my head then. Really? You had? Were you still flying at this stage, I, I, in any way or not? No, not no. really. No. Have you flown? Did you fly much since leaving the uh, Royal Air Force? Not really. No, because I, <coughs> after leaving Dennis, I went to flight simulation, right. which was quite interesting. 
wrote an article in Flight because I was I I was fascinated by uh, what you know low grade simulator could be and also for air combat. Yep. Um, and wrote about that in Flight once. So that the the arrival at West Raynham in your lovely Hunter was your final flight for the. Oh yeah. Yes, but uh, I think I was able to fly in, I think it was 52 aircraft. I was very lucky, really, yep. fly the Javelin and Meaches and mm. um, things, because they were all around then. Mm. I wasn't that impressed with the Swift. No, well, I, I'd see but, the Swift looked lovely. Mm. Obviously came with this great heritage of a supermarine, mm. but flew like a pig. <laughs> You're right. I well, mean, it was straight wings as well, yeah. wasn't it? Or, or, or did the Swift have the swept wings? No, it had swept wings oh, all right, but wings. it was really, compared with the Hunter, I mean, it had no performance and it was, in climb. It was a direct sort of competitor of the Hunter, the, the Swift. Yeah, um, in a just, way. But, didn't but the, what it was good, fighter reconnaissance. Yes. It was very good on the fighter reconnaissance, and of course our cameras were... Britain had always been very good at uh, recce cameras. Mm. Vinton, I think, did most of the cameras from memory. Mm. Um, and they were jolly good, because I was amazed. I only had one trip in the in the Swift, mm. and it was so easy to get um, dramatic, easy pictures. Yeah. You know, I was intrigued. I, I mean, they just told me in five minutes how to do it. Mm. And, and but, most of the aircraft you flew, or a lot of the aircraft you flew, there were no two-seaters when you, when you flew them. So you, the first time you fly it, you're... Well, there were, I suppose there were only about five of those, I think. I didn't have trainers, but... Gosh. And you did the javelin... You didn't do the javelin course, you just... No, I was very lucky, because most people had to go to... Where what was it then? In the, where the javelin at OCU was? Because, yeah, I, I was amazed, really, because, mm. uh, yeah, I was being slightly cheeky when I... <laughs> to get a quick um, check-out. It didn't have a great the, reputation, the Javelin, did it? it was, no. It had problems. See, sometimes it seemed to turn quite well with its delta wing. Mm -hmm. Quite a big fin, didn't it? it was a That's right. Fin yeah, I mean, you, 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 it had a dirty great mm -hmm. uh, tailplane, didn't it? Yeah. So, so just going back quickly to the, um, the Tower Bridge thing, S since then, have you looked at the... The dimensions of, of the, the hunter versus the bridge, and seeing how far, how far, and a, and a, and a bus, and a double deck bus, <laughs> and seeing how far you. you, you no, had but I mean, it wasn't. It was it nothing. Didn't feel it was nothing tricky about it. It was nothing difficult. No, no. It all and, and just. I mean, you know, I forget my daughter. Quite correctly, probably said it was a silly thing to say, but I mean, it. It was just another target to yep. me. You know, yep. in that instant, we were. You know, we were doing so much of that type of... And that, that was your bread and butter almost, if you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, that it just... Instantly, I didn't, I didn't know it was there, turned round, and I was looking, as I say, at the scaffolding round the <laughs> St Paul's Cathedral, you know, which seemed a bit strange, mm. and then looked forward and, you know, just dived down over that reach, you know, just before you get to Tarbridge, so that I'd got a few extra seconds to think about it and then it seemed the obvious thing to do <laughs> mm. you were eventually exonerated by the RAF weren't you but not until about 1982 well oh I don't know no that was to do with my pension yeah oh. no which was quite interesting that no I'd, I'd forgotten about what you said there yeah that was quite interesting really yeah because there was a contradiction of of their position on that and I, I thought um uh, 
if they were going to take the pension away from me as well as everything else, you know, they should have court martialed me. And even mm -hmm. then, uh, you know, other things would have come out. Well, mm -hmm. they invalided you out on medical grounds before you'd even had the medical. You're, you're right. I mean, they... And I think it was a very senior medic, that's right. I think it was in... I think it was an air, air vice marshal or something, mm -hmm. in charge, top, top medic guy. Medic, medical mm -hmm. guy, you know. And I thought it was a bit rich in a funny way, <laughs> you know, to, to have that without... Um, that the medical. But, you know, they yeah. could have been right, I don't know. And you were obviously... I'd say being a little mischievous goes back earlier in your career because you were told, I believe, that the NAT could never do low-level formation aerobatics. Well, that was when we started, yeah. So and, I mean, that was absolute rubbish because, <laughs> you know, we went up and, I, I mean, I've got this lovely painting there of the yellow NAT because mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you're quite right, we were... It, it was forbidden to do formation aerobatics and, I mean, that was lunatic. In the NAT? Yeah, mm. to start with. And so that led to the formation of a, of the three of you, sort of. Well, that was right. That was Lee Jones and Earl Feach, Roger Hymans. He'd been on Treble One and the Black Arrows, mm -hmm. and I was lucky really because I'd got a lot of um, nat experience by then. Yeah. Well, that uh, was the creation of the Yellow. Yellow. Jacks, that's right. The Yellow Jacks. Just a f that was just one year of the Yellow Jacks. And did you fly with the Yellow Jacks? Were you well, part only of the team? no. I was the first person to. Dear old Lee, I think partly because, you know, I'd got quite a lot of experience on the nap by then, um, offered me the number three slot, you know, which was where I was on the number three side, you know, the left side. Yeah. And then I was also doing the display flying, the singleton. And, you know, with my commitments then, and also I was starting, I'd been asked to start the second squadron up at Valley because there wasn't a... There wasn't a squadron leader then that could... Um, there wasn't around that got the experience or was going to come up. So that was the second NAT squadron at, at Valley? That's right, mm. yeah. So your commitment to Valley made you decide to decline the offer of being a, a member well, of the Well, it was partly the fact team. that I was starting the second squadron, yeah, yeah, and there was no squadron leader there to do it or in the pipeline. But you did demonstrate with them. You flew with them as these as not the really no no, no. <coughs> because i i just did all the solo displays <coughs> that year hmm. um but the fact that you you and lee proved that the nat was a very capable formation aerobatic oh, yeah. aircraft yeah good actually for led to the formation oh, of the yeah. red arrows yeah that's it? right the yellow jacks that year you see um proved that the whole thing was right because it was partly I'm not blaming Central Flying School, but between Central Flying School, I think, and and the powers that be, they'd made this decision that no formation aerobatics, you know, which, which was silly, really. And as I say, I mean, to start with, before it came in, the NAT did have a bad name. Mm -hmm. But, uh, oh, no, it was splendid. It's like the, like the Hunter, really, the splendid thing... He used to do, and I was amazed others didn't do it, was to take them up and dive down supersonically and then uh, roll uh, your hunter or the gnat when you were supersonic going down, and it was intriguing, really. A supersonic roll is quite a 
well, could, could it not be presented? people, people never advice? thought of doing it, but I mean, yes. it was quite a straightforward thing. <laughs> mm. And um, have you sort of had any continued chat with the Red Arrows? Do you, do you have any, any sort of, are they involved, involved well, in history? Well, I, I mean, Ray Hannah I knew quite yeah. well, but, you know, the New Zealand guy. And also two of my students, I was quite pleased. Two of my students were in the early Red Arrows mm -hmm. on the listings. Yeah. So the Yellow Jacks were around for a year. The Red Arrows were only supposed to be around for a year or two. That was that was the, the, the plan. Well, the Red Arrows, yeah, followed the following year. Mm -hmm. They um, started the Red Arrows after the Yellow Jacks yeah. had started and, it. and at that stage in the Air Force, every squadron had some sort of display team. You're right. There was, But that was almost going out by then right. in a funny way. But earlier than that, you're quite right. Right. Brilliant. Do, do you think your your flight over Westminster and through Tower Bridge made a difference in any way, Alan? Well, Apart from to your career, obviously. I've, I've no idea, really. But, well, but I suppose the, the good thing is, 50 years later, we did rather celebrate the, uh, the, 100th, the 100th anniversary. Yes, that was, that's uh, very true. That was good to see. Oh, yeah. They did a, quite a good job then. Did you go out to watch that? Were you, um, were you invited to stand on the bridge? <laughs> oh, well, somebody else mentioned that, but no... <laughs> No, you were, your phone wasn't being tapped again, was it? <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, it was funny, that. Well, thank yeah. you very much. No. It's been absolutely fascinating well, and inspiring. I wouldn't say that. So, oh, it, it, really has. Has. it really it has. has. Um, and the stories are just uh, well, amazing. So thank you. No, good to see you both. And all the best with whatever you're up to. Yes. <laughs> yeah, whatever this thing <laughs> whatever is. Whatever this thing yeah. is. You're uniquely quite a mischievous individual. Well, I uniquely. wouldn't say that. No, <laughs> no, no. But one's got to enjoy life. Exactly right. Mm. Yeah. And what a life you've had.